You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. All right, Marco, it's the Halloween episode, which means we need to do something really spooky. Well, let's talk about that rash you've got, okay? What? This is nothing. It's this been is, a couple weeks. Look, you spent a lot of time at Fantastic Fest no, hanging out fine. with some really weird people all night long in a dark theater. And I'm just saying, as a friend, you should get that looked at. I, I'm sure it has nothing to do with that guy who bit me. Yep. It, it's scaring me just sitting here. I mean, it's actually pulsating. And, <laughs> you know, that's normal. No, it, have you noticed we're missing a cat? I think something happened. I'm not saying that your uh, that little face-like appearance, that protuberance on your arm might have been responsible, but I'm not ruling it out either. Okay, so maybe you have a point. Maybe it's fine. I just accept the fact that I should just go back to drinking beer again. Yep. Beer it is. Digital Noise. Welcome. I'm, I'm Chris. I'm Marco. And we have a stack. Oh, yes. Boy, an intimidating stack of titles to talk about this week, a large amount of which are, in fact, horror movies. Uh, not only are horror movies, most of them are quite good. Eh, there's a few that ain't so good, but we'll get to them. No, there's a few that are downright awful, <laughs> but at least one of those is saved by one of the greatest commentary tracks of all time. Uh, and I, we've, you know, there's... We've got a lot of regular big titles as well, um, and before we get started, just want to tell you guys, hey, become a subscriber. It really is the only reason this site can stay alive at all. Yes, you do get bonus stuff by being a subscriber. There's four different tiers. There's different podcasts. There's uh, more stuff on the way. We're finally getting some video cameras, so we're going to start soon Ooh. actually filming stuff as we record, which will be fun. Um, not everything, mind now you. Now, that Marco will was be like, frightening. Oh, crap. Our I gotta, faces. I got to brush my hair. Shit. I got to brush my hair, and you know, hey, but you know throw some money our way not only will the site improve chris will be able to buy some ointment yeah for my for my yeah. belial for his belial um as that's well. actually not one of the movies we're reviewing today. no it is not i should have saved that for we, we, we already did, did that we did basket case we did the basket case trilogy <laughs> um as well click on the amazon.com links uh those are all the pictures of the titles we're talking about uh today on the page and if you click on one of them it brings you to the amazon buy page if you buy that item we get a kickback if you buy anything on amazon starting from those links we get a kickback so that's right that's very like very helpful Can't buy your you. last minute halloween costumes on amazon through one of our links yes and if it you, helps everybody and if you don't this is a fact the devil will take your soul to hell it will and not in a fun way yeah, no, 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 no. It's never. Has there ever been a fun way of doing that? If there has been, we didn't see it this week. But believe me, we have some people going to hell later on. Most certainly. But let's start off with something that can only might actually feel like going to hell <laughs> if you were sitting in the theater for long enough, which is way too long. Which is David Yates's directorial adaptation of The Legend of Tarzan. Oh, yeah. Now this is. Not, like, it's not completely terrible. I'm being no, hyperbolic. No. In fact, I know some people who genuinely like this, although yeah. I would put this movie on the same level as something like uh, John Carter 
You yeah, know, yeah, where it's it like feels like that. Almost ran, but it's still pretty the first boring. entry in a trilogy that probably is not going to happen. Yeah, and well, what I like about this is is that rather than blundering about with spending half the movie as the origin of Tarzan, it just does that in brief flashbacks. It's kind of like feels like it's already the second film in a series. Yeah, I mean, it's like Greystoke all over again. It's you know. For, it's one of those weird things where Tarzan is this kind of character who is like this 19th century character, like, I don't know, Sherlock Holmes is probably the closest thing I can think of. It's one of those beloved characters that gets reinvented every couple decades, and it either lands or it doesn't. Frankly, I think they've tried to reboot Tarzan now three or four times in the past, you know, 20, 30 years, mm-hmm. and it's never really taken place. And I even question whether it can be done. This is a set in the 1890s, and that's another thing. You cannot really update Tarzan. You can't modernize it. No. It has to be this sort of Victorian-era colonial environment, and which is actually what I found the most interesting thing about this movie, in mm-hmm. that it does try to update some of those rather kind of queasy themes that you are that are sort of inherent to Tarzan right his relationship with black the black natives yeah. and that sort of thing it actually gives uh, Alexander Skarsgård and Margot Ro- Ro- Robbie who play uh, Tarzan and Jane respectively it gives them a much more respectful relationship with yeah. the natives that the, they're close with. and also a relationship to one another which is one of the things I think actually kind of worked for the movie uh, Margot Robbie's uh, Jane is not some simpering damsel in distress well she's you not know, she's not but at the same time they make this point of this line it's like what do you he's like oh, call yeah. for, for Tarzan he's like what do you think I am some damsel so, in distress yeah, that was too she on proceeds the nose. to be like tied up for the rest of the movie. They're much. trying to make her like Marion, <coughs> Indiana Jones, the Temple. Uh, not Indiana, the original Indiana yeah, Jones. Raiders. You know, and, and with uh, with Christoph Waltz kind of being a Belloc-y sort of character, definitely. But it doesn't quite work. This is a bunch of really good people doing their damnedest to sell this material, and wow, this is a CGI fest. Oh, it's and one of those like like you get. There's almost no other way to do this. Oh yeah, but it. It's not the, the uncanny valley here is huge and yeah. and lots of bad looking CG creatures live it's, in it. It's uh, hard to get. There are some really good. There's a few examples good of it. moments in but here. But I will say, if you watch that. one good thing about this disc, because it, one, it looks great. I mean, as a fairly recent film, yeah, it's gonna look good in the transfer. Uh, the special features go into a lot of the backstory and how they made this film. And what I found most interesting is they didn't go to Africa. This whole thing was shot. In, like, England, I think. In well, you can tell the studios. whole thing is on green screen. Yeah, most yeah. of it's on green screen. It's on stage sets. But what's interesting is when they show some of the plate photography they got and some of the CG effects that they worked out, it's interesting to see the ones that actually fooled me. There's a lot of stuff I'm like, yeah, that's CG, that's CG. But there were a handful that I was like, oh, I thought that was, like, an actual shot. Now, I'm so of the theory. occasionally succeed. I'm of the theory this is in the same universe as Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards. Be- yeah. Because it's like one of those that, although it's not as well-known history as how Hitler died, yeah. it's like definitely taking its, its, it's playing with real historical characters right. in ways that clearly is not what actually happened yeah. to them. Most namely, as you previously mentioned, uh, Christoph Waltz, yeah. who is playing a very famous, um, Belgian, 
trader captain that yeah. uh, was slave trader. Yeah, who who was yeah. just an awful guy yeah. in real life and lived to a happy old age. Yeah, as opposed to this movie. And then Samuel Jackson, who's uh, at least mildly closer to the truth, who was a fascinating guy, George Washington Williams. Yeah, uh, who was like a who had become a free man after the Civil War, American Civil War and went on to just pretty much have some really interesting adventures in uh, foreign countries documenting what was going on, documenting. He was actually one of the people like who was responsible for causing a split between Belgium and a lot of other countries when he started documenting how Belgium was treating the slave trade over there, which was like awful. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it does play with real history. And like I said, it is a lot more respectful and I hate to say politically correct because that sounds so cynical, but I do think they try to go, you know what? All the black people and all the old Johnny Weissmuller movies were just kind of there and yeah. inconsequential. You know, how can Sar- but you know, for all their good intentions, uh, Tarzan did not stop slavery in no. Africa. <laughs> and, and this movie did not start a new franchise because ultimately its biggest problem is it's kind of boring. Yeah. Uh, like, much like if you try and watch The Last The Legend of Greystoke now, that movie being boring, at least you're like, well, that's because too much of it is in England and it just drags on. This one doesn't even have that excuse. No. I mean, it, it's just, and Tar- Tarzan gets his ass kicked in almost every fight he's in. Yeah. You're like, he goes into a fight, gets his ass kicked. Goes into another fight, gets his ass kicked. You're just like, what? Why? Why is this guy supposed to be so awesome if all he does is get his ass kicked? And, you know, you have to really buy the relationship of him and the gorillas. And the problem is the gorillas, they're just not CG believable. So, no. yeah, the, the emotional content isn't here. There's not enough action to really keep you that interested. And what action there is isn't that great, especially when they start having him swing on vines and stuff where it's like looks awful. It, it is way too CG heavy. And I know there's no way they could do it. They even admit as much. They're like, to actually get the footage we wanted, we could never have taken a crew into the dark heart of Africa, into these jungles that are impenetrable. I get it. Unfortunately, I think this material is dated and probably just really didn't need to be done again. Uh, but who knows? The minute I say that, somebody's going to figure out a way to bring it back in the next five to ten years. And True. We'll review it then. Too. Well, because it's a brand that everybody knows, but yeah. doesn't cost any money to it's, use. So exactly. It's, they're never going to stop giving more tries to Tarzan. Yeah. Uh, just that's why there's so many Sherlock Holmeses or, yep. or Dracula or what have you, because nobody owns the copyright. But it's easy to do those compared to do, to doing Tarzan. True. <laughs> which is so site specific. Uh, next up is Cafe oh, yeah. Society, which might as well called itself Woody Allen film trademark. Yeah, uh, speaking of material that doesn't need to be revisited anymore, this isn't a bad film. Look, if you like Woody Allen... If, if you've you never know, seen a Woody Allen film, yeah. if you're not largely familiar with Woody Allen, I feel like you'd see this and go, wow, this has really got a unique yeah. little voice to it. It's kind of cool. But if you've seen, like me, lots of Woody Allen films, you're like, okay, this is Woody Allen coasting. Yeah, which is, <laughs> you know, I mean, like anybody else, you know, he can do that. He's so prolific. I will grant him the occasional dud. But at this point, uh, I mean, there's that old saying about every novelist writes their first novel and spends the rest of their career trying to rewrite it. Right. And that's kind of what Woody Allen has done. He can't, Sometimes he pulls out a surprise and does something that feels a little fresh, but he keeps going back to these wells over and over. This is him in his sort of nostalgic period. 
uh, which moment, is, which is Woody Allen that I like. I mean, like if you go back to Radio Days, which is one of my favorite Woody Allen films, this kind of feels a little bit like Radio Days with a little bit of bullets over Broadway mixed in. Yeah, it's sort of Woody Allen who's not in the movie but narrating. But might as well be. He might as well be, and he loves to structure this fairly simple narrative, but then have all of these fun little cameos and moments. Uh, that are sort of gossipy uh, of just like minor characters. So for like 30 seconds here, hearing about, you know, here's so-and-so who once got married to this person and then went and did that. And then they leave the screen and never return again. This is like Woody Allen having just reread Hollywood Babylon. And going, Uh, ooh, I want to write a movie that takes place in that world but isn't really about the people. Like, none of the main characters are those people. I I suppose we Uh, should talk a little bit about what it is. Jesse Eisenberg here, who... The the main surprising thing is that it took so long for Woody Allen to cast Jesse Eisenberg as Woody Allen. He plays Bobby Dorfman. (laughs) There's a name for you. Uh, Youngest son of a Jewish family growing up in New York City in the 1930s. Um, his older brother, Ben, played by uh, uh, good Lord, Corey, Corey Stoll, who lately has become a stalwart yeah. in, uh, in Woody Allen's films. And after seeing him play Ernest Hemingway in Midnight in Paris, who's surprised, he plays the older brother who's kind of a gangster. Um, but he decides, uh, Bobby decides he wants to move to Hollywood and he gets a job running errands for his uncle, Phil, played by Steve Carell. Well, while he's there, he meets his secretary, Veronica, played by Kristen Stewart. And, uh, Bobby kind of falls for her in a big way and she's clearly falling for him too, but she's like, well, look, I'm in a relationship with somebody else. So he's actually quite respectful about it overall, probably more so than somebody would have actually been in the 1930s. (laughs) Uh, but you know, they're enjoying their their time together as friends while he's sort of mooning after her. Now, of course, the switch comes when we realize her her guy in question is, in fact, Uncle Phil, who is cheating on his wife and isn't in love with her, definitely in love with her, but is like, you know, it's a complicated situation. Sure. Um, he decides to break up with, with her. Uh, Bobby immediately swoops in. Still, both parties don't realize who the other is. And as the movie goes on, things get more complicated as basically people start to become aware of what the real situation is. I felt like this movie finally gets away from traditional Woody Allen material that we've seen a thousand times before, this sort of like love triangle thing, when... You get into the last act where it's actually Bobby going back and working for his older brother and becoming like a entrepreneur at like a high end bar in Manhattan where he really turns into this very different person. Which is where the whole cafe society thing, which is really the only connection with the title cafe society. It really doesn't have anything to do with anything. Uh, and you're right that this is, this does feel a little bit different from some of his other stuff in only because I think the ending is, well, I won't spoil it, but suffice it to say, this is not a movie where there's big revelations or big, you know, turns of events. It's like people fall in and out of love, they move on with life, sometimes love is not requited, and people just carry on. The only thing that's really new, I mean, and it is the only new thing in this movie for Woody Allen, is this marks the first time he has ever worked with uh, cinematographer Vittorio Storaro, and for both men... These are guys in their late 70s, early 80s. This is their first digital feature. And that threw me watching this because looking at it, it looked very digital. Yeah. But, but not in a bad way. But it just says, you know, I mean, those. if you ask me who are the last 
filmmakers who are going to be using celluloid, I would have put those two guys on the list. So right. I was surprised. I, I noticed that as that well. They did it. Watching this, it was almost distracting watching a Woody Allen yeah. film in digital because we're just so used to a certain look and feel yeah. of it. Now, I, that's not an argument against digital. It's no. just a Woody Allen film. It, it works against that sort of gauzy, classic Hollywood era feel that he's going for Mm -hmm. Uh, it looks very slick it looks very modern it looks very sharp and uh again in any other movie it would be fine it just took me by surprise that those two guys decided to go that route but you know if you like woody allen it's not bad bad. it's not bad it's not one of his strongest ones but it's not bad it does have its issues i thought jesse eisenberg sometimes decides to be full-on woody allen and sometimes he's not being that at all, and I feel like he's playing three different characters completely in this movie. Yeah. Um, because of the way he deviates in and out of how much he wants to channel Woody Allen. Like, at some points, like, almost like he's doing an impression, and at other points, well, like, he's not at Every all. male lead in a Woody Allen movie ends up having to wrestle with that. And, you know, yeah. I kind of blame Woody Allen because if he doesn't want that to happen, then he should stop writing characters who are just basically himself. (laughs) He could write a new character. Which is hard when everyone is so hyper-familiar with Woody Allen and Woody Allen films. Uh, Kristen Stewart, I thought, was actually quite good in this. She's actually turning into quite a fine actress. Oh, no. She's she's been making smart choices. um, Steve Carell's really good in this. Mm -hmm. Blake Lively is serviceable, as usual, but she's... I'm just... I think the only thing I've really seen her in, I like her in, was The Shallows, Mm. where I was like, oh, she was pretty good in that, but most stuff, she just kind of... Fades into the background. I mean, this is... As opposed to Parker Posey, who plays one of their good friends, who is, even though it's a small role, is just bigger than life every time she's on screen and wonderful. That is the one thing Woody Allen has always had going for him. He can get an amazing top-notch cast who are probably all working for scale, just so that they can cross Woody Allen off of his list. So they can say, I was on a Woody Allen film. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So yeah, Cafe Society... Worth a look if you're a Woody Allen fan. If if you're already not a Woody Allen fan, I suspect this is just going to annoy you. And it's also, I think, available. I think it was shot for Amazon Prime. Wasn't it shot for Amazon? Mm, I don't think so. I, I you're thinking that he has an Amazon Prime TV show. Maybe now. that's what I'm thinking right. of. And I thought maybe digital was one of their stipulations. But mm. I, haven't, I haven't seen the TV show. It's actually on Amazon Prime now. I no. think it's been getting kind of mid-range reviews. Uh, next up is Joshi. Ah. Uh, this brings gives Thomas Middleditch, who has been killing it on Silicon Valley, a chance to headline a movie, playing a guy who's come home from work on his birthday. Uh, you know, he's he's talking with his fiance Rachel. Uh, you know, and it's, everything seems fine. Allison Brie, which I'm right off the bat like, oh yeah, this movie has Allison Brie. It's going to be good. Um, kind of a crush on Allison Brie, <laughs> and he comes back and she has hung herself. With a belt from the door, which actually is exactly what happened to, uh, not with his girlfriend, but with his friend's girlfriend, my friend Harris. He's told the story many times. Oh, yeah, where he, he walked in, realized his friend's girlfriend was like, or I, I can't remember if it was the other way around, but had, you know, auto-eroticized themselves on the door. Unclear if it, what exactly happened in the reasoning, but it, the movie immediately goes to four months later. Uh, he had, they were, you know, they were scheduled to be married. They had, uh, he and his fr- friends had already rented this ranch out in the country for a bachelor party, but they're like, well, why do let this go to waste? Let's all go, you know, we'll spend time with Josh. We'll go out there. Yeah. Boys night. Yeah. We'll go out there and we'll all just connect and, and hang out. And, and there you've got like, a group of like recognizable comedians, including of course Nick Kroll, who this movie was is is playing largely a very Nick Kroll type character. He's the we should really be partying harder <laughs> harder than this instigator, but who's not 
necessarily obnoxious. He thinks he's doing the right thing, and sometimes he is, yeah. and sometimes he's not. But um, along the way, they meet Jenny Slate, who's out there with her friends uh, partying, and she kind of comes into a weird connection with one of their friends. Uh, I know there's a lot of sort of this is they've definitely evolved mumblecore. Yeah, where it's it like okay, there's none of those old rules, and this is almost entirely. Um, I'm improved this whole movie, which I know is not normally way. a good thing at all, in yeah. my opinion. But I feel like it really works here, and maybe it's because it these is. people really know each other well. Well, that that's a big part of it. And you know, when I saw the box for this, not being very familiar with the with the premise, the DVD cover kind of suggests that it's going to be this uproarious comedy and I just thought oh this is going to be like the poor man's hangover right uh, but it's not it goes to a very dark place very quickly and it's not an oppressive uh, horrible film in that regards it's, it has its moments of lightness but it's really about a bunch of people trying to get together dealing with this elephant in the room which is their friend who is trying to heal and how they all deal with it what I found fascinating about this movie was that when I looked at it, you know, they're in this, like, beautiful or sort of bucolic, you know, cabin. It's not in the woods. They're near a little town, you know, but it's obviously a vacation cabin. And about almost this, about one year ago, actually, uh, I was uh, in Indiana with some old college buddies, and we got together, and we rented a cabin that looked kind of like this. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not rustic at all. It's this big, beautiful three-story thing with, like, you know, it's like a pool tables home. and, you know, and, and hot tubs. And it was <laughs> fascinating to me how quickly, even after 20 years, all of us kind of fell back into our normal ways of relating to one another. What Joshy does that's kind of interesting is that, unlike my little group of friends, Joshy's group friends don't really know one another. Uh, he's got a couple of friends who like one another. The other guys is like, you know, a guy had he uh, who lives in his apartment complex who then invites his best friend over. Mm-hmm. And so all of these guys, you know, their only real connection is through Joshi. And that creates some interesting conflicts between them. Uh, if it had just been a bunch of buddies hanging out and they were just hashing out their dirty laundry over 20 years, it might have been a different story. But by bringing in a bunch of guys whose only common connection was Joshi, uh, the one guy who nobody seems to want to talk about... It actually brings a lot of extra, an unexpected dynamic to the film. And I, I like as well, there's, it's very naturalistic. Uh, and I think it's partially, this is definitely like an actor's film. Yeah. Uh, Thomas Middleditch chose to play this in a way where he's in complete denial over the emotional impact of this thing. Mm-hmm. He's just like, I am literally here to hang out with my friends and party a bit and have fun. I mean, it's not like they're not acting like college kids. No. But like, there's a certain amount of like longing for those days, of course. Even a- uh, Adam Polly, who plays Ari and Brett oh, yeah. Gelman, who probably plays Greg, start off as the guys who seem like they're going to be the out of control party guys. And then they bring them both home with really human turns and have very human moments. Um, I, I, I was surprised at some of the decisions that these guys went with, but you can see how it was really kind of an acting workshop film yeah. with these characters and their relationships and how they tried to make it evolve in a way that seemed like, okay, these might be things that these people would actually do. Nothing is too outrageous. No. You know, there are some genuinely really funny things that they do yeah. in here, and there's some genuinely really startling moments in here uh paul riser shows up with his wife who's the oh, yeah. who is the the uh mother and father of of uh uh the girl who killed herself and 
are there basically trying to secretly record they Thomas Middleditch to, to prove that he actually murdered her. And which is, sounds like it would be the whole plot of another film. And yeah. here it's just like, it's just so extremely uncomfortable. And the whole time, meanwhile, a, a prostitute that they've hired, you know, who's a sex worker, mind you, is hiding in the bathroom and doesn't know what's going on. I mean, yeah. I mean, this is a movie where, I mean, again, like I said, when I saw the cover, I thought, oh, it's like going to be a kind of hangover type film, a bunch of men behaving badly. And yes, there are going to be hookers and there will be cocaine and beer all over the living room table. But yeah, it does go to a much deeper place and it winds up ending on a very, I don't want to say somber. I think it's a hopeful note, but again, it's not this, uh, by the book, you know, there's going to be a moment of redemption or a huge catharsis. It's just people having a weekend, getting through their life. I mean, it feels like, if Cassavetes decided to do The it Hangover. It does. You know, it it, it kind of has that emotion to it where, you know, it's a bunch of guys who probably don't normally walk around talking about their feelings, suddenly confronting these issues, and yet doing it in a way that's very light and playful at the same time. It, I really do think this was quite good. Uh, agreed. Uh, n it never really came to an apocalyptic moment you might have been expecting, uh, as opposed to Into the Forest, which is an apocalyptic <laughs> film, but not in the there. way that you're expecting either. No. Uh, this is a very quiet little indie film where, for reasons we're not entirely clear, we never know what happened, but there's a complete technological collapse. Yeah. All power just goes out. And these two sisters, Ellen Page and Evan Rachel Wood, they live out in the woods in a pretty cool little house with their dad. Uh, and, uh, who's playing the dad here? I'm trying to remember. Uh, he's a Canadian actor, uh, blanking on his name. Callum Keith. Uh, is it Callum Keith Rennie? Yeah. Yeah. It's he's one of those guys you've seen in a bunch of stuff. Like he was this, um, the, uh, uh, Cylon on Battlestar Galactica, one of the main guys on there. Uh, he played Lou Ashby on Californication. He's one of those guys you've seen in stuff. You just went like, oh, it's that guy. But, they're like, okay, well, we're kind of like woodsy out here anyway. You yeah. know, we have a certain amount of like, like they have their own water well and they have, they're, they're kind of independent. But as the weeks go on and an accident befalls their father, they realize they're going to have to survive on their own. And it really becomes a, a, it's less an apocalypse film than sort of like two sisters who have this thing between them now that they have to figure out how to. It's, it's come an together. apocalypse film in the way, say, the adaptation of McCarthy's The Road is an apocalypse film. Yeah. It, it's not about, you know, why it happened. You never really know why it and happened. And no zombies. You know, there's no zombies. There's no scientific explanation. We hear some rumors and hearsay. And it's one of those, I don't know, I guess this qualifies as a genre, the near future uh, you know, there, there's yeah, no way like to know it's even years in the future. Now, maybe. The only giveaway is at the beginning that they have these fancy sort of holographic uh, monitors, and the whole house is run by computer voice command. Yeah, you know, but once the power goes out, before long, they've lost cell service. Gas is going is disappeared. Nobody's delivering food anymore. And like you said, because they're in this very nice cabin in the woods, they're kind of self-sufficient and they're not in the urban center. So they're spared a lot of the worst. It becomes this character study of these two young women who are trying to survive and trying to eke out a living. And, you know, there is what has surprised me is in spite of all of those genre tropes that are not present, there's still a lot of tension. A lot of suspense. Yeah. And, you know, granted, 
Ellen Page and Evan Rachel Wood are perhaps a little bit long in the tooth to be playing high schoolers. <laughs> yeah, well. However, and I say that not as a criticism, but just to point out the fact that, you know, just to illustrate that when you have two actors who are really good, I mean, they don't even look like sisters. No. And yet... They work together so well that you, your mind just automatically forgives it. It's absolutely, I think, some of the best work either of these women have ever done with one another. I mean, this is the first time acting with one another. Yeah. But, but it's some of their best work, period. It's really good performances based off of their, each other. Yeah. And almost entirely it's just almost each entirely other. It's almost entirely a two-hander. I mean, there's a few other characters that come in here. Max Minghella plays a guy who's Ellen Page's boyfriend back in yeah. town who briefly appears. There's a creepy guy who works at the local sort of Costco, yeah. played by Michael Eklund, uh, that, that pops up for a little while. Uh, but it's largely a two-woman show. Yeah. And I think overall they pulled off. I, I definitely felt there was some stuff towards the end that was a little like, okay, I'm not really sure how that would be possible. Or really weird decisions they make that you're like, wait, what? You decided and, you know, to do what? May, and maybe in the novel it makes more sense. But I do know that this was a passion project for Ellen Page. She read this novel. She loved it. She fought to get it made. And it got made. Uh, You know, it's a very quiet film. And I don't think it got really a lot of views. Uh, in, if it were a bigger budget or a bigger distribution, I think we'd be hearing like Oscar talk for these women. Hmm. As such, it's a small, uh, intimate little post-apocalyptic film that I, I highly recommend. It, it probably, in any other week, it might have been one of my picks of the week. Uh, and this is from, uh, Patricia Rose, uh, Rosima, who is openly lesbian film director. So no big surprise that either one of these actresses would, would be working with her, her as well, but who's done quite a few really well regarded films. Like I've heard The Mermaid singing, Mansfield Park, Kit Kittredge, American Girl. So, you know, I think this is solid. I just, I felt like the, when you start getting into, well, we got to wrap this up, I, there's some stuff that I, I just had big questions about, but. Maybe, like you said, maybe it, it played out better in the book. What I did really love, and this is my pick of the week, because I just love the shit out of this movie, is Swiss Army Man. This is not for everyone, okay? <laughs> Decidedly. I mean, and me, the guy who's always like, there is almost no excuse anymore for repeatedly doing fart jokes in uh. movies. Like, I, this movie has got about 300 fart jokes in it, and yet there, it works because of the context yeah. Are there philosophical fart jokes? Um, I'm getting the feeling this it. wasn't, you weren't as warm to this as I no, was. No, no, I, I, I really, <laughs> really like this. I, I was just trying to think whether or not the jokes themselves or the farts were philosophical. Uh, <laughs> this is kind of a hard film to explain, but you do have, for those of you who haven't seen it yet, Paul Dano is a guy named Hank. All we know about Paul at the beginning is that he's very lonely, he's depressed, he is trying to commit suicide, he is on a beach somewhere, stranded, ready to end it all, when a corpse washes up on the shore, played ably by Daniel Radcliffe, uh, which is, this is either the easiest job he's ever had or the hardest. <laughs> but largely, you're going to see Paul Dano moving, walking around carrying a rather dead-looking, gaseous, Daniel Radcliffe. Yeah. And what's amazing, the, the whole point of the Swiss Army Man is that he finds very creative ways to use uh, Daniel Radcliffe and, and, as a survival tool. Yeah, and not like, oh, we're going to take his ribs out and make a bow out of him. Right. No, in a magical realism Very way. magical realism. Because, he, because even though he's a corpse, 
uh, he, uh, and it's, you're, you're never really sure. It's one of those movies. If this is all in Paul Dano's head or if there is some real magic happening here or whatever, but his corpse is, he finds is able to actually communicate with him and talk, even though he's still a corpse, like he can't move his arms and legs. He can't remember anything about his past life. And as it starts going on, it becomes clear. Dano is sort of making Daniel Radcliffe believe that who he was is who Paul Dano actually was and is trying yeah. to get away well, from. Here's a guy who has completely failed at life. And what he's trying <laughs> to do is teach a dead man how to live, what yeah. it means to live. And it spins off into these philosophical conversations about, well, what is it to die? What is it to laugh? Why are we here? Yeah. Uh, why do, why do love, our bodies but... do things? Why yeah. do we have sex? You know, what are women like? And, as Dano tries to explain all this stuff, he finds all of this trash. And this is beautiful stuff, too, by the way, from a production design standpoint. Using trash and things in the woods, he creates, like, he does a, a date. He creates a date for him out of garbage and <laughs> plays uh, a woman and replicates a bus. You know, yeah. and, and it's hard to describe this stuff. It really looks good. Describing, yeah, he's like trying to remind Daniel Radcliffe of what life was like, because he's like, well, you yeah. did live at some point, so here's what, trying to bring to you these moments that are moments from his own life, out of building these fake sets out of garbage, <laughs> and the filmmakers really make you, you're almost, Daniel Radcliffe is almost an avatar for the audience in some weird way. Yeah, that, in a way. That, you know, that's the, the, the key the to the film, film I think, is really. trying to remind you of these beautiful and bittersweet things in life and, and it's why really they're important. Dano explaining life to himself that's yes. how i read it that he's really this surrogate is some is like a sounding board yeah. that he can kind of bring himself back to the world and heal himself but then it goes into an even further magical uh, twist ending, which I won't reveal here. Yeah, you can't. You don't want to do that. You which know, often, all, which is totally up for interpretation. What actually absolutely. happened in this movie? Uh, you can choose to believe what you want to believe, <laughs> but I. W a lot of what makes this work so well. Not only is it like, like I said, it's it's just kind of like, just gorgeous and and moving at points. The way it's filmed, the performances, the the story as such. But it's laugh out loud funny with the stuff he's doing using Daniel Radcliffe as a Swiss Army man. Like, you know, stuff like finding out, like, he can, he, he farts constantly almost, so he can use him like an outboard motor. Yeah. <laughs> like, ride him like a jet Or a flamethrower. Or a flamethrower. Or using, oh, God, actually, for all that <laughs> weird stuff, the most disgusting thing for me in the movie was that he uses him to, as a water vessel. Yes, he uses him <laughs> as a water vessel. He uses him, like, he can shove, like, this crutch thing he found down his his throat and he'll shoot it back out like a grappling hook yeah. uh, to climb stuff. It's just ab so incredibly absurd. And you're either going to completely fall in love with this or you're going to go, I don't see what everybody likes about this film. And yeah. I've heard both reactions from people who I respect and go, okay, I, I get why someone would not like this. Uh, for me, I was just raptured by this thing. Um, and I, it's one of those, I'm, I can't wait to rewatch it. Um, and of course there's, I might do it with the, the, uh, the co commentary from the writer director, Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinart. And then the production designer, which also, as you pointed out, was great. And the sound mixer slash fartist, yes. <laughs> Brent Kaiser. Uh, there's, you know, 17 minutes of behind the scenes. Uh, there's a little bit about how they made the dummy of Daniel Radcliffe, which they actually had at the, the, um, Alamo draft house for the premiere. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, a lot of this, is I mean all of it's practical. They made a point of everything yeah. you see is practical. I mean it's either Daniel Radcliffe or a 
fairly convincing puppet. Yeah, I never, there was never a moment I was like, oh, that's the puppet. Yeah, no, it has to be, it has to have that grounded in reality feel. You know, it, it's kind of, it, it feels like something that, you know, Michel Gondry might have directed. It's very Michel Had, Gondry. you know, Spike Jones written the script. It's like a, cr- it's, it's like a cross between that other, uh, 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 Paul Dano movie, uh, uh, where he imagined the girl he imagines and writes comes to life. Oh. Uh, which that was Zoe Kazan. I'm blanking on the I, name of it right I. now. Uh, but great movie with that same sort of magical realism designed to like talk about life using it as a, a method to examine why is life worth living when sometimes it seems like it's not. Uh, it's like that if Michelle, that sort of film, if Michelle Gondry had made it. That it's interesting that, you know, this film is going to be my pick of the week, but you know, <coughs> until I saw it, Into the Forest was actually going to be my pick of the week. But Swiss Army Man edges it out just barely. Uh, next up is Blood Father. It's Mel Gibson now working for action director Jean-Francois Richet, uh, who I was largely unfamiliar with, but apparently is is well thought of. I've seen his one film, uh, Mezrine, with Vincent Cassell, which is really freaking good. Mm. Uh, I believe it was it was released in two parts. If you get a chance to watch it, really good. And he did that remake of Assault on Precinct 13, which was... won't hold okay. that against him. It was okay. It just wasn't great. Uh, this is him with Mel Gibson playing, you know, the the big thing right now. It's the old retired dad who has to get his shit back together and like come out to to rescue his daughter. Well, the the slight twist of this is apart from the fact that it's Mel Gibson probably working at a cut rate now. Oh, yeah. Uh Mel Gibson is obviously a man with a past. He we meet him at an AA meeting. He's clearly been in and out of prison. He's on parole. Uh William H. Macy is his sponsor and also neighbor at the yeah. trailer park. Yeah, they're rednecks. Uh, they're, to they're, to it's point. very rednecky. Yeah. Uh, but he's, and he's like, makes a living giving tattoos in his trailer home. Uh, and so far, you know, he's obviously a guy who has totally failed at life and he's trying to get it back together when out of the blue, his estranged daughter contacts him. She has fallen into a bad scene has gotten into drugs and cross paths with Mexican cartels. Who else did she call <laughs> but Mel Gibson, her dad? Uh, this is, by the way, Aaron Mar- Moriarty playing this role, yeah. who you might have seen on Jessica Jones or yeah. True Detective. And she's very good in this and has great chemistry with Gibson, who kind of has to be the, the oh, I don't want to do this. And, you know, if, it's if I start, you know, now, you know. Yeah, I'm I'll go, go back, back to, to prison. Yeah. And, but he's willing to risk it because it is his daughter. Even because though they, he know he failed her he throughout failed her life. Her. And, and so now this is his one chance, despite how grumpy and reluctant he is, to actually do something for her. It's a redemption story, as you might expect. And like most Mel Gibson vehicles, he takes a hell of a lot of abuse. But what's interesting to me is, okay, look, let's talk about elephants in the room. Regardless of what you think of Mel Gibson, the actor... The man himself. Yeah. When he is on screen, he is an eminently watchable actor. Oh, yeah. He's a fantastic director. Watching him do this movie where he's playing a character who is going through AA, talking about how difficult it is to quit drinking. Not even sure he wants to have quit drinking. Yeah. And then, you know, later on, we'll see him engage with other people who... You know, he has a conversation with, like, immigrant about immigration, and, you know, somebody corrects him, and he goes, well, okay, maybe. So much of this movie feels like it's terms of his parole. Uh, Like, it's like, 
Mel, you have to go out there and say something nice about brown people and about how bad drinking is. Yeah. And he's like, fine, I'll do it. That's, that, I that's what I got to do. I hadn't thought about it in those terms, but you're absolutely but, right. But you, and but it's and it's just as reluctant about it as the, this his character is in this movie. Like, yeah, he's uh, he's grudgingly admitting that maybe he was being inappropriate about yeah. some stuff. And I used to run with these Hell's Angel bikers who are neo-Confederates and Nazis, but I'm not with those guys anymore. Yeah. I'm not into that, that whole anti-Semitic bag. It's like, why don't you just come out and, and like, say this instead of being and in somebody else's movie where you're playing a character. I don't it. know if it was tailored for him or if that was just the role and he committed to it like any actor would. But it works. And mm-hmm. and I don't know. What, what I found interesting is now one of my pet peeves on most DVDs today, almost every DVD in this stack, is the minute you pop it in, you are forced to watch a panoply of trailers that you oh, yeah. can't fucking fast forward through enough. The very first movie trailer that pops up when you bring in Bloodfather mm-hmm. is a trailer for uh, Mel Gibson's upcoming film, Hacksaw Ridge, which mm-hmm. a lot of people are already talking about as a return to form. So maybe, maybe this is, maybe this marks that moment where Mel Gibson is slowly coming out of exile and being brought back into the fold. But I find it very curious that all of the marketing mentions from the Academy Award winning director of Braveheart. (laughs) Yeah. Never once mentioned Mel Gibson's name. And, you know, it's gotten that toxic. And I guess they're just relying on people who go, Oh, Braveheart. I love that movie, but forgot that Mel Gibson also directed it. But, if he's really gotten his shit together, and I hope he has, then I'm willing to give him another shot because watching this movie reminded me how much I enjoyed uh, having Mel Gibson on screen. Uh, Mel Gibson is an interesting test case for separating art from yeah. uh, the artist. This is Woody because Allen. <laughs> he didn't actually do anything illegal or no. dangerous to someone else or something. He just acted really poorly publicly and refused to apologize and for it. some really horribly toxic things. Yeah. Although there's plenty of other horrible rumors so about his violent behavior. But It's definitely not like, you know, a, a uh, Roman Polanski situation or something no, like that no, where you're like, extreme. okay, well... This guy actually did something really terrible to another person and, and probably should be prosecuted for it. I get people who are like, I won't even watch a Roman Polanski film. Uh, like uh, Mel Gibson, I get that we were all furious and it makes it worse that he's refused to apologize in any way, shape or form unless you count this movie. But, uh, and again, but the, like at the same time, I'm like, Okay. That could be a like, coincidence. There's a lot of real pricks in Hollywood. Mel Gibson is one of them. He just happens to be hey, an, yeah. a little anti-Semitic. Yeah, but even the other pricks were like, this guy's a big prick. Yeah. 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 Although way, everyone yeah. who's ever worked with the guy loves him. No, and that's the thing. Even the talk about Hacksaw Ridge, which again is maybe him resuscitating his career. It's like, here's this World War II movie, but it's about a pacifist. So yeah. it's like Mel Gibson gets to have both. You know? Yeah, but like, who, I get to who is a pacifist apart, because of his pacifist. religion, to be fair. And apparently and, that's emphasized strongly. And, and, and again, and again, it is based on a true story, yeah. but I just wonder if Mel Gibson is picking these projects because he's working through something it could be. as an auteur, or if that's just the material. That's well, he's got to feel like, like, how the fuck did this happen where I was like one of the most celebrated directors and actors in the world, and now, no, like, a lot of people won't even touch me with a 10-foot pole. Oh, yeah. It's like, you don't go publicly talking shit about Jewish people in Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> and then have everybody find out that your dad is a noted... <laughs> the cost denier. Yeah, exactly. Um, but either way. Anyway, enough about. Uh, and then you make a movie about Jesus, thing. who apparently yeah. the Jews killed. And now they're doing a sequel. 
Again? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, this actually is a reasonably solid little yeah. sort of like thinking action film. You know, it's it moves pretty fast. Gibson is great in it. Everybody's pretty good. Michael Parks has a small role in here. Yeah. William H. Macy's good. Diego Luna has a small role in here that he's good in. I, there's honestly nothing to really not like about this. Yeah. It's not like one of those like, oh, you have to see this movies. But it's one of those if you watch it, you'll be in yeah. for the in for the run. It, it's not one of Gibson's like like the last thing he did that I felt like I enjoyed as much as this was a uh, get him to the gringo. I think it was called, yeah. which was more of an old school Gibson. Like, let's make this really funny. And like, you know, let's bring that old Gibson lethal weapon type persona yeah. to the forefront or, or payback type thing. This is not that yeah. it's, but it's definitely I, darker. I think his persona makes this movie. And, and this is something that any good actor or any sort of movie star is different from a, being an actor. I'm talking about being a movie star. There is inevitably, uh, they bring their baggage. They bring their I- their iconicity. They bring mm-hmm. their infamy to that role. In this case, it actually helps the movie and makes it better than it is. True. Uh, next up is the third film in the Purge trilogy. I think called trilogy, but I don't think they have any uh, thoughts of stopping making these it's anytime just, yeah, soon. Yeah, the Purge, the latest the, one. The Purge election year. Now, the thing I like about this, first off, they've all been written, directed by the same guy, James yeah. DeMonica, who's from the beginning had his plan of where he wanted the series to go if he got the chance to do it, which I think on the whole, I mean, I would put this about at the same level as the second one. I don't think it's necessarily better. I know people who did think it was better than the second one. Second one was definitely a big step up from the first one, which, whereas I enjoyed, a lot of people were like, well, why do you have this film that keeps talking about this awesome shit going on outside, but we never get to see it. Well, that's a pretty you know? standard low-budget technique. I yeah, mean, exactly. Look at Into the Forest. It's about how people react to this <laughs> horrifying situations. Yeah. Uh, and by this one here, you've got your survivor of the... One of the survivors of the second one, Frank Grillo, which, by the way, if you haven't seen The Purge Anarchy, it really is totally solid right. and fun. It's like John Carpenter makes a, makes ah, a nice. Purge film. Uh, Frank Grillo has gotten out of here, has strong opinions about The Purge at this point, <laughs> you might say, and he's actually working as security for Elizabeth Mitchell, you know, from Lost and a billion other TV shows, who plays Senator Charlie Roan. She is coming out going like, look, the purge is ridiculous. It's only here to benefit the rich. Uh, we need to put an end to it. And it lo- she's so popular, it looks like she's probably going to win against the uh, the sitting senator. Right. The um, members and- of the, what is this party? The New Founding Fathers. Yeah, the New America Founding Fathers, Father. who are clearly a bunch of fascists. Yeah. They are neoconservatives if they got in with a mandate. Yeah, they have religionized. And that's a very big theme in this movie. Now, I have not seen the other two purges. I've heard good things. They are well worth watching. But if you have, like myself, if you have not seen those, you certainly do not need to see them to enjoy no, this. No, this, there's definitely... And I did enjoy this. There's there's not much in the way of callbacks. It's cool if you remember that Frank Grillo was in the first one and he mentions, I've survived a yeah. purge before, yada yada, but um, like it's not essential. You can watch this first off and it is basically, you know, exactly what happens is what you think would happen is that the establishment as is puts a hit out the moment the purge starts, yeah. which will maybe the last and, purge if she gets her way and the on her. And really kind of weird. I mean, let, let's put it this way. I mean, th- this is kind of perfect timing. And it occurred to me, we need to see more of this every every four years. Because if you think about it, what happens after – what's the next major event that happens after Halloween every four years? Election Day. Mm-hmm. There must be a horror genre that is, <laughs> you know, political horror. And this comes out at this sweet time. It's found the sweet spot. It's 
if you are trying to find something to entertain yourself with at home on Halloween weekend and getting ready for the horror of this 2016 election, this is going to fit your bill. It's eerily prescient and you know, hey, maybe if you want to make America great again, make America purge again. That could be the uh, the slogan for this movie. Much like the second film, there's lots of like socio socio political subtext that right. if you don't really want to pay attention to it, you can enjoy this film purely as a yeah. straight up action horror. But it's there even more prominently in this oh, one. But it is which very is deliberate. <laughs> a lot of it being the unholy bargain struck between like the church and the the right wing. Yeah. You know, about each trying and, to benefit and, like, the predi- other. Predatory c- capitalism gets called on the mat. Uh, we find people in low income areas uh, who suddenly have their purge insurance because in this world that's a thing. The night of the purge, going, oh, by the way, we're raising your rate. You know, by like My thousands of dollars, amount. you either have to pay up now or within the next 12 hours, you know. So it's basically a way for predatory lenders, uh, insurance agents to either squeeze more money out of their clients or get out of having to pay off for any damages that happen. Yeah. And, you know, you get the sense that there is a growing movement within America to go, you know what? We went too far with this. This is horrible. It's immoral. It is being applied to. It's not being used for its purpose. It's being used as a way to remove uh, the undesirables. So as far as that goes, yes, it feels very topical. And you're right. You can, you can totally you can put that out of your mind. You can just watch this as an action horror if you, cho- if you choose. And yeah. the, like I said, a lot harder to ignore that stuff than in the second one. But I think part of why this is as good a film as it is is the how seamlessly it makes that – feel as tense as it should all yeah. these things that I mean, this it's is more a, of an action film than a horror yeah, really yeah but it's and a good so, was, film. so was the purge anarchy um yeah. but it, yeah it's, it's a very dark action you bloody can still action enjoy film. this movie and vote for donald trump i don't know how you square <laughs> I don't those know two how you things put those things together but yeah but you could you could in theory and just complain every once in a you while know, about the purge is horrible but damn it we need that wall no question this film has a liberal agenda no it uh, does uh, yeah, yeah absolutely no question I mean, they might as well just call this woman Elizabeth Warren. She's like yeah. a combination of Elizabeth Warren, Hillary Clinton, and some other mythical liberal savior uh, with a little pinch of Bernie Sanders. But, yeah, the, the, the key point to this is it's been established that there is a certain level of political classification that is off limits. Knowing that this person might be able to win the election by a healthy margin – the powers that be go, you know what, just for tonight, we're lowering that. Anybody, you can kill anybody. Yeah. So, yeah, it's definitely the system fighting to protect itself. And it's worth watching. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. Uh, so next up is one of the most disagreed upon fervently films of the year. Oh, really? Despite how ridiculous it is that anyone is getting passionate one way no or the other this was controversial. about this film, which is Paul Figg's re- remake, reboot, what have you, of Ghostbusters. Um, I, I get it. I, I think all these actresses are, are, are comedians are very good at what they do, generally speaking. I, feel like Paul Feig has had some really great stuff, like Spy, and some really shitty stuff, like Bridesmaids, which I'm sorry. I know a lot of you like Bridesmaids. I fucking hated it. I thought it was awful. Um, Look, I'm not I, sure know. that this was... The, you know, they say pick your battle, and I'm not... I think that maybe 
Paul Fagg's unique form of like female bonding feminist comedies was really the, the, you know, putting, choosing the battle for that being a remake of Ghostbusters was probably not good planning overall. Like, or in any remake, quite frankly. Well, you know. No, it, but, but there's nothing inherently wrong with it. No, and I only not. say that because of the inevitable, like, huge reaction that it you had. You can't really even give this movie a, a real review because you're, you're gonna be butting into a lot of preconceived notions. Mm. I will say this. Now, because I, I didn't really care one way or the other, frankly, but if you're the kind of person who listens to this podcast regularly, You've probably already formulated an opinion on the new Ghostbusters. Almost certainly. You know, you've probably already seen it. Now, if you liked it, I will say that this extended edition Blu-ray that we're reviewing, definitely worth your time. You're going to get the theatrical cut, the extended cut, two audio commentaries, about a half dozen featurettes on the making of the movie, gag reel, multiple gag reels, lots (laughs) of extra deleted scenes. I mean, there's a lot of bang for your buck here. If... (laughs) You've already decided you have no interest in this movie or saw it and didn't care for it. It's safe to say you can skip this one. I mean, I think the thing about this is that it's a workmanlike comedy that is not any better or worse than your average Hollywood, like, big-budget comedy these days where it's like, okay, clearly most of this was that lazy technique of improving your, like, just doing sketch comedy over and over again with line rama-ing it until yeah. they pick in the editing room which worked the best. And this film, more than a lot of them, really feels that. Yeah. You're, you're, you really get that this is not one script. This is a series of, si- well, of sketches. Well, sketches script went through so many variations all in the hopes of I think eventually getting Bill Murray involved and then yeah. finally he said no it doesn't matter how many times he could have just said that he could have just told him look guys you can rewrite well, this 5,000 times I'm never going to do it I don't it. think this script had any no, it doesn't have anything to, to do with it scripts. but I think it carries that baggage into this new version because not only do they have to reboot a beloved franchise they have to find a way to shoehorn in all of these cameos from all of the previous films. Which I thought was one of the mistakes. Which is a makes. huge mistake. Yeah. Even though I love all those guys, yeah. I don't begrudge them again. But you don't want to remind but, people constantly of, you know, the, of the film that is arguably the much better and, and film. And the cameos aren't even all that good. Uh, you know, it's trying to set up, you know, this new world, this new cast of characters. It knows it's going to be controversial with casting them as women. It's trying to appease a fan base. It's trying to be funny. It's trying to work through a script that's obviously just a platform for more gags to be improvised. It's trying to be an action blockbuster spectacular with special effects. It's it trying tries to, to sell too toys. much. <laughs> and it's trying to reboot a franchise. And make no mistake, I mean, the only reason this movie got rebooted is the same reason they reboot everything, in that it's a brand. This would have it, gotten rebooted years ago it if it wasn't rebooted. for Bill Murray, like, being so standoffish and, like, like everyone was like, well, you, there's no point in even doing it without Murray, and Murray knew this. And he's basically been toying with Dan Aykroyd for yeah. decades. Like, yeah, yeah, send me a script, I'll look at it, when he never had any intention no, absolutely. of, of really and, you know, it. And I think, in a way, maybe this was the only way they could go. They're like, look, we're never going to be able to make that Ghostbusters, so why not, we, why not just do something new with it? Yeah. But, again, it's trying to make so many people happy, and this is a problem with any kind of big-budget movie, especially these tentpole franchises that there's so much writing on, they try to make everybody happy, and eventually, 
you know, it may come out okay, yeah. but it's never really allowed to be its own thing. You know, it also has to be an origin story, and it has to sell all of that stuff. So who knows? If I don't know if it did well enough to warrant a sequel. I'm it sure didn't. it'll happen. I, it didn't. But, it well, did, It did go. poorly, apparently. Okay, um, I don't know, I'm, but I don't hate it. If yeah. they made a sequel, I would watch it in the hopes that maybe... Now that they've kind of gotten all the housekeeping out of the way, they yeah. can be free to make their own movie. But we may never know. I, yeah, I mean, I just, I, you know, like, it's just so unstructured, this is my biggest problem yeah. with it. It's just so all over the place um, uh, that I do. I honestly feel like I'm watching a, like, they just wrote it this the week before filming yeah. type of thing. Um, and I think there's nothing inherently wrong with the performances except that, once again, they are often just going off character and doing things because they're goofy, funny things they're to like, do. We need something funny to happen here. All right, I've got four of the most talented comedians in the world. Mm-hmm. Just let them roll for, you know, an hour or two and let's see what sticks. And unfortunately, when you have a big-budget blockbuster like this, you can't. I mean, there is a reason why Marvel cleans up. Everything that they put out, whether you like it or not, it's put together with Swiss watch precision, and this movie was not. Nope. Uh, yeah, I, I, it's unfortunate, because I really wanted this to be great. Yeah, and I mean, I wasn't mediocre. a hater on it at all. I mean, yeah, I there's wanted them to, to succeed. I don't hate it. I mean, I feel like people who actively hate it are people who went into this with the preconceived, well... You know, it's not the original Ghostbusters and a bunch of women taking over and, you know, who have some bias on it. I, I just feel like they, anyone they who would, actively hated it but, wouldn't go to the theater. But I, I so and I don't Apparently hate they it. did it. I just, it's just kind of there. Yeah. It's a solid effort, but not as good as it could have been. So going to a totally different oh, direction, yeah. except it's also about busting some ghosts. Speaking of solid <laughs> efforts, that wasn't as good as it could have been. Yeah. Phantom, the, the Hong Kong film, Phantom of the Theater. Now, I have no idea how this film got made because... There has been a ban on making ghost films in China for, like, decades. Well, that is a line in the movie, actually. But, like, like there's a point where you're like, okay, so this is one of those films, like, okay, not everything that's happening is actually ghosts. There's a Phantom of the Opera situation yeah. actually happening this here. Is a, but uh, there are actual ghosts in this film. No, they're not. No, there are. Because no, even, even some of the characters who are in on what's happening have ghost encounter experiences. This is, this is the problem. And this is how I suspect they got around that ban. Because they do mention it. The character says, actually, the ghosts aren't, they aren't real ghosts. They're there to express the things that the characters can't say. I want to, I don't want to spoil this, but mm-hmm. I, I really don't think this is worth watching. It's, it's fun. It looks nice. It has a beautiful period, uh, setting. Uh, it's set in Hong Kong at the turn of the century. There is a theater that has a reputation for being haunted. People who enter this theater mysteriously die. Yeah. Usually uh, self-immolate. Self-immolate. Uh, a character, a filmmaker, uh, who has a past with this particular theater, decides that for his first feature, he wants to direct it. A ghost story set in this theater and right. gets permission to shoot there. And of course, along the way, people die horribly for various reasons. And sometimes people see ghosts, and sometimes they think they see ghosts. Without spoiling too much, eh, fuck it. This is a big Scooby-Doo mystery. Basically. I, I mean, it is. This is I, how it winds I up. I still disagree with you about the ghosts. The thing. ghosts are there just to, like, sell you on it. Yeah. You know, I think it's like, well, we really... And we'll get to this on the pit, because I have a similar comment. <laughs> but it's it's one of those things like, well, look, you know, we kind of said there were ghosts. 
even if there aren't literally ghosts, we kind of need to show some ghosts because people are expecting that. And I'm paying this guy five cents an hour to produce all of the CGI by himself <laughs> because this movie is chock-a-block with CGI. Of and course. that is a huge, huge problem for this movie because they have so much beautiful work reproducing this theater. Oh, it's and a beautiful theater. the intricate period detail. Mm-hmm. The clothing is gorgeous. They, It's great. I mean, it's like a 1930s sort of... It's very stylized and very, very flashy. It, it felt like they, there was no reason to not go with an old-fashioned yeah. ghost, ghost effect. It's like the, Pepper's Ghost-type uh, stuff. Absolutely. You know? like, the, or even just old-school opticals or just, you know... How much terror did Robert Wise get out of the haunting just by panging, banging on a door and shooting it with a wide-angle lens? They sacrifice plot coherence. They sacrifice atmosphere for some really bargain-grade CGI. I think had they avoided that, I could have overlooked a lot of the plot holes and just narrative contrivances of this. It's fun. But ultimately, uh, it's skippable. Yeah, I, I generally agree with you. I did not hate uh, uh, watching as many Chinese films as I do, which is a lot. I would be shocked if they did have really good CGI these days. Oh, oh so sure. No. It's kind of, I go went into this not expecting the ghosts to be like as anywhere near as good as no. they could be. So it never even occurred to me to be judgy about it. No. I was kind of like, okay. And they do some cool visual stuff. Like, conception-wise. Conceptually, it's good. And I I think there's a lot of stuff to like in here. I like the performances, which are often over-the-top, but fun to watch. Yeah. Um, I like that it comes back around to actually being a Phantom of the Opera story of sorts. It is. You know, that you don't really see that, that, oh, yeah, where this is called Phantom of the Theater. This is probably going to get, that's probably going to come into the plot at some point. But, yeah, it's not, it's kind of nonsensical at points. The plot... Ultimately, you're like, well, how could you possibly like, yeah. like, but it's, it is. And everybody knows when by some amazing coincidence, all the people <coughs> involved in this story somehow are connected to this theater yeah. and it's, it, it's just lazy writing. And again, as far as the CG goes, it's not the quality that bothers me. It's more the quantity. Okay. I could have accepted some subpar CG, but by keeping... Putting it in there, it really undercuts what could have been a fun, tense, little gothic-y uh, kind of horror show. No, um, I think a much better Asian oh, yeah. horror film that oh, just came better. out is the South Korean film The Wailing. This thing has gotten rave reviews, and I don't think I like it quite as much as everybody else seems to, but still got to say this is is pretty solid, uh, spooky horror. Yeah, no, this is great. Uh, as far as that goes, you know... Yes, it has a lot of gore. Yes, it has a lot yeah. of visuals. The thing about this film that it, is that it really gets under your skin. Uh, there is a, uh, a South Korean uh, police chief who is investigating this bizarre string of murders. This is one of those quiet little towns where nothing bad ever happens. <laughs> and suddenly, people are not only killing one another. I mean, they are slaughtering Yeah, like people. just going full feral. Yeah, it is just horrific. And no one knows... Why this is happening? Is it? Are they on drugs? Where they do they consume bad mushrooms? You know, uh, and of course, you know, somebody eventually has to go. Hey, you know, demonic possession is not entirely out of the question, right? Well, this being Korea and not like you know Iowa. Yeah. <laughs> Although nowadays it's not uncommon in yeah. Iowa, I suspect either. Just a different type of possession. Uh, but he, the d- detective, meets a strange young woman who just starts out throwing rocks at him. Who tells him, "Hey, there's that weird stranger out in the woods." 
He's connected. Uh, it's you the should... Japanese man, and it yeah. really preys on the Koreans' fear of the Japanese. fear and dislike of Japanese. Well, like he ends up uh, getting the help from another cop and a Japanese-speaking priest serves as translator, and going out to find this guy's home in the mountains. And they go there. They see pictures of all the infected and and murdered residents. Oh yeah, it's some an of their orgy of evidence. Yeah, exactly. It's and like you walked into the into the killer in Seven's apartment. It's all that stuff. And yet they're still like like you know. The guy's not there. But and he doesn't arrest him. They're forced to retreat. And then when they come back, none of that stuff is there. He can't really arrest yeah. him. Well, he could have arrested him when he got there. But, yeah. But if he had been there. There's a lot of gaps in logic. Uh, but this is really powerful. It's great performances all across the board. Very stylish. It was a very long, difficult shoot. And I don't think they'd ever quite accomplished anything in this genre uh, before, at least according to this particular filmmaker on uh, the commentary. One thing I found intriguing and kind of frustrating is the cosmology, the, the mythology, the theology, if you will, of this film doesn't make any sense to me. It is, uh, like, is, is I, it I a think Buddhist so. even is it like sub Asian culture? Like at some is point, it, it's there's reli- a Catholic priest. It's definitely reliant on, I think, to some extent, of you being in South Korea yeah. to have some uh, to be able to get a pulse for what's going on there culturally with the feelings yes. for this. Because I get a lot of this. I'm like. A lot of Asian countries have a very big mishmash of wildly different religious beliefs and superstition. And this is definitely, like, very one of those situations, at least rurally, anyway. Yeah, not not so much urban. There's a lot of that. And there's a lot of meat to chew on here. I mean, there's a lot of thematic content. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some really dark as hell oh, yeah. stuff and some really bloody hard to watch yeah. moments but also some very funny stuff too i mean yeah. it really does succeed on a lot of levels the problem for me is again especially as we ramp towards the end and we start getting these reveals there's really sometimes big blo- uh big gaping holes of logic and again i could accept that up to a degree the problem i have with this film is it's far too long yeah. It really drags at points. And 156 minutes is too it, long. Yeah. For this story, which is actually rather slight, so that when you do get to the reveals, you know, at some point you're like, wait a minute. This guy went to, this priest goes to confront this character who may or may not be a demon, who yeah. may or may not be Japanese, who well, may or may is, not be dead. It does the, you know, it does the twist and then it does the reverse twist. Yeah, it's and like, I'm kind of like, did, what, why did we even, yeah. like, I felt like all of that was kind of like we spent so much in the movie building up towards a fake twist. Yeah. That I was like, so. And then when we have that confrontation, like, you found him in a secret lair. It's never established how you knew to go there. But <laughs> yeah. you suddenly, why is, why does everybody in this movie where Everyone has cell phones. Why are all the there's why are all the photographers using old film cameras with old flashes? What developer in hell is hmm. processing those photos? And why haven't they called anybody? Hey, this guy comes by once a week with tons of dead bodies on this reel of film. Maybe I should call somebody. I think it's they had too many ideas. It, it's with too this many film. ideas, and it's one of those like they should have split this film in half and made two completely different had, movies. Had this, or if it could have even been a series. I might have seen watching this <coughs> for like one or two hour installments, but yeah, it's gorgeous to look at. There's a lot of stuff they do right. I wish it was a little shorter. Yeah. Uh, next up is a film that shocked me that it was not, in fact, a period piece film. Because yeah. I had no freaking idea that Francesca from Unearthed Films, which I believe is a division of Arrow Films, uh-huh. is not, in fact, a 70s giallo I, film. I was completely 
I was completely fooled too. Because yeah. When you dropped this off, we didn't talk about it. We rarely talked yeah, about I cho- the movies. I chose we specifically not to warn you because yeah. I didn't know nothing about the gorgeous packaging for this that's no. put together is any indication this is anything but like another one of those great little discoveries of an old film. I thought it was an obscure little giallo. Now, it, there were some <laughs> things that took me by surprise that kind of lingered in the back of my brain for the fact. For one thing, uh, the production company, I believe, was called uh, uh, Guantab Negro, which is Black Glove. I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. you called it's it Black Glove. very on the nose. Maybe in the 70s somebody would have done that. Okay, seems a little odd. Uh, there's a couple little props that look a little too vintage to have been of the period. You know, but little things that I could easily overlook because I was really enjoying this sleazy little piece of fun here. And it wasn't until the end when I saw the making of, and I was like, holy crap. Holy shit. How I is- totally got fooled. Well, part of it is like they've – and I wondered this from right in the get-go. I'm like, for something with such a nice, like, package, yeah. like, it looks – like, the, the film quality looks like nobody did a pass on it for fixing no, up. No, they really made and it look like shit. And you're like – that was the first clue to me. I was like, no, if this actually had been a Blu-ray restoration of an older film, it would, it would probably look a lot, look better. A lot better. I thought this. it was – well, part of that is because it was a very cheaply made film, and I thought that was the point. This is the work of two Argentinian brothers uh, who yeah. are huge Giallo fans. Yeah. And I, I'm Luciano like, and Nicolas Onetti. Onetti, which, again, right there makes me think, oh, it's an Italian film. Uh, what it turns out is these are two guys from Argentina who have made a few horror films in the Giallo mode uh, because they're in love with the genre, they decided to do their own period Jalo film, fool the audience, shot on, like I think, like a digital SLR camera. Yeah. I mean, this isn't even like a high-end video. This is like a consumer-grade camera that they've then processed to look grainy and washed out. And then they actually brought in, I think, uh, two people did all of the dubbing and purposefully dubbed the whole thing into Italian. Yeah. Everything about this is trying to fool you. And I would be pissed off if I thought, well, you know, you wasted my time with this stupid gimmick, except they actually do pull it And they made a solid little Giallo film. Had I not known? Yeah, it's not meta at all. I suppose at some level it is, but it's not like wink, wink. Remember when you saw this in an Argento film? No, but there is a – if you watch a lot of Giallo, you're like, okay, this has – well, the like elements there's are no there. mistaking that it's there. The killer with the black gloves. Well, the they're red really, gloves now, the, Well, they're red gloves. Nice. Yeah, the, the strong use of color, like uh, yeah. of like color lighting through everything. You know, yeah. the the fl- use of flashbacks. Like it's just there's so much stuff here that is the the really strong score, great yes. score. And by the way, this comes which the filmmakers also did. This comes with a score on a separate CD. Yeah, uh, you know, with the set, which the is kind of cool. knocked it out of the park. I mean, I mean, it took them about a year, and they probably spent maybe like what ten grand on it, but it looks exactly like what they try to make. And it's one of those, you know, series of murders. Does it tie back to this missing girl from years and years ago that was never recovered from this rich family? I don't know. Well, almost certainly. But you you got to watch to get the details. And, and, you know, there's also, again, there are also (coughs) plot holes and weird choices that I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. I'm not even sure what that... You know, composer had to do with anything. There's stuff that's there more for style than yeah, for like like making it all come together. But that's also very even, yeah. typical of the giallo. It's genre. almost like I have to write a giallo that this script makes too much sense. You need to <laughs> add some red herrings, a couple of plot holes, and let's shove in a character to get naked here for no reason. Yeah, you know, it, it does. It's that's why it was fooled me. I think had it just been a conventional little horror thriller with some of those tropes, you know, it would have just not worked. 
but these guys actually pulled it off. Yeah, it's it's a glowing like love letter to the genre yeah. that works in and of itself as a film within that genre that doesn't feel like just too derivative of any other specific film in the genre with a nice amount of bonus features, great packaging. Yeah. Francesca is actually pretty solid to get put together package. Yeah. And if you love Giallo, you'll be, you'll be, yeah. I feel bad that I've already warned you. Yeah, it's not I, a You'll never get piece. that experience again yeah. of being fooled the way we were. I, I'm glad to hear you did. Cause I felt like a fool afterwards, but I was like, <laughs> I was like, wait, I can't believe I was fooled that easily. But it's really not that easy. It's only because they did it so well. And in any other week, that might have been near the top of my uh, pick of the week. Yeah, agreed. Uh, next up is one that we're not even going to... Barely we're speaking of in the same category as yeah. any of the horror films we've talked about so far, which is <sighs> Satanic. Um, this is another one of those, like, hey, young up-and-coming actress who is told by her agent, well, the way to go is to do a horror movie, to move into films. This this case, Sarah Hyland from Modern Family, who I believe is not even the first horror film we've seen her in, uh, who's on spring break, and she and her friends uh, have decided that they are going on a road trip to L.A. to hit some of the most satanic sites in L.A. Morbid curiosity. Well, they're going to Coachella, but hey, they got a couple days to kill. Yeah, they're gonna they're gonna hit the. Let's go. Let's go visit the Manson compound. Let's yeah. go see the Sharon Tate residence. Where, yeah, and let's book a hotel in which a noted satanist committed suicide. Now, not all of these characters into it. Uh, there's one or two that are into it more. The problem I have with this movie is that there it had promise. There's there's plenty of movies that we'll discuss later on that never were going to be that good. But this is a movie that tried... You sense that the filmmakers are trying to color outside the lines a little bit of the genre mm-hmm. by merging the sort of creepy, anxiety-producing dread that you might get from a satanic panic movie from the 70s. Think of, like, Exorcist or Rosemary's Baby and stuff like that. And they're trying to merge that with the sort of slasher, kids-on-a-road-trip template. Mm-hmm. And the problem for me, and I don't want to even get into the plot because it's it's largely ludicrous. Suffice it to, suffice it to say, these kids see something they shouldn't have seen, and next thing you know, dark they, they, forces are chasing. They them. get marked for hell by something. Apparently, if you have a secret satanic cult, they take the secret part very seriously. <laughs> uh, the problem I have with this film is that it's trying to do something, but it it violates two basic rules. Uh, you're not going to induce dread and horror in me because I don't care about your characters. Yeah, they're You're, all thoroughly unlikable. They're not only cardboard, they're unlikable cardboard. And the unwritten rule of the slasher film is that, look, fine, we get it, these characters are horrible, but at least kill them off in some interesting way. This does most of its violence off screen. Yeah, almost all of these guys. It, like, the, the, the third act of this film, not, you know, not even the third, last 10, get 15 minutes... Now is, like, these guys going, well, we're going to kind of do more of an abstract sort of yeah, way of again, killing these it's, people. It's smart. It's where it you're just like, well, why, how did we get there? And and it done so cheaply that it's like a high schooler's haunted house. It, it almost wants to be arty. And again, I think in another kind of film it would have worked. And if the characters had been likable, I might have felt that mystery but, of, like, what happened to my friend? And, oh, my God, why did I just but find But it's a bunch here? of cheap tricks. It's a bunch of cheap visual gags that yeah. they do to, like, oh, it's creepy. Now we're and you're like, no, it, there's – who is making this? This movie has exactly one good idea. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it's about five to eight minutes towards the end. And by then, 
I trust, trust me, you won't care. Skip this. Agreed. Uh, as well, then we're just going to say just basically the plot and uh. say skip it about six plots. Um, at least Satanic had the benefit of like seeming like it was like had a good premise at first, you know, even if it went nowhere with it. Six Plots doesn't e- has a such a ridiculous premise in the get go. It's so gimmicky, which is a bunch of high school kids, uh, are at uh, a party at a, a resort house. Uh, you know, they're, they're, and they're doing it right. They're loud, like lots of drugs and alcohol and, and sex and what have you. And then everybody wakes up and, or, and everybody but one person finds themselves inside a coffin somewhere, right. not knowing where all they are. To, to kill them in an elaborate way. Yeah, all, all with something that they're figuring out. Like one guy's just slowly figuring, filling out with water, but there are little clues in the coffins as to yeah. where they might be. And the killer has to set them all up on video monitors on a chat room, has basically challenged the one. Girl, you, while the world watches, yeah, while the world watches, uh, oh, you, you know, if you, you call can your parents, them. I'll kill you. Yeah, if you, if you call, call the parents, cops, or you I'll call kill the cops. Yeah, which you know, except she, for that time when you do, yeah, and that I don't. It, this thing breaks its own rules left and right. The kills are all lame. Uh, the script is atrocious. Yeah, as are the performances. Um, I, maybe you thought you really like Saw, and you're like, oh, this that's uh, another like I, trap movie. Maybe sounds like there's maybe something smart here. The box there's, says it all. It's like buried meets Saw. Yeah. Except the part it leaves out is that they did it terribly. Yeah, it's really bad. So six plots is a a a, a ridiculous plot that should have been buried. Just Fair, saying, you know, I that's better writing that's than what's actually in the movie. Uh, just so, that horrible gag he just did. And we're going back to 1964 oh, for this okay. next one, which was a, uh, I believe, Olive Films re-release of The Earth Dies Screaming. Now, is it, like, as corny as... one of the Kino Lorber releases. We have a bunch a of Kino. Yes, you're right. We have uh, a bunch of them this week. As well, as much as this is a really corny looking film, it's one of those films that you'll see stills from it in movies that are talking about how corny the 50s and 60s yeah. were for sci-fi. Uh, it's actually a pretty decent film for what it is with a with a neat creepy as fuck premise and it's by one of the all-time great horror directors from England Terence Fisher who did did a ton of the great Hammer films. I mean, he's one of those guys who's just considered like, yeah, you, you, you have to watch a, a certain degree of, of Fisher to, to understand horror. I mean, I don't think this has ever been held up as one of his masterpieces, no. but it's certainly a film that you could see how it influenced a lot of other films to come over the decades yeah. as it was like kind of one of the first films to go start off this dark. I mean, when the film starts, Almost everyone has died on Earth. Yeah. And they're just, they're, and it just happened. There's been a gas attack. And for some reason, a couple people have survived in this town and are coming together trying to figure out, well, how did we survive and why did we survive and what did this? And then there's these, uh, for some reason, robots walking around in spacesuits, which is the one moment you're like, what the fuck yeah. is a robot need a spacesuit for? Who are, who, if you, who are, you know, walking at Night of the Living Dead zombie speeds. And, yeah. and, and if you, you know, that are only a problem if you go up and like a, you know, basically hug them or something. You can see the British film industry trying to figure out how to do sci-fi horror in this movie. Yeah. It, it's not that it's bad. It's just those genre tropes had not really been established yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got this small, quaint little village with a handful of thick people who have managed to survive. No one knows why. You know, again, they figure out, oh, there's an alien invasion involved, you know. And then the problem with this movie is, is that it's obviously done very cheaply. Mm. It's largely one location. 
this invasion force of robots. We only see two of the robots at a time. Supposedly, it should be a charnel house. This entire, the entire street should, should be littered with, bodies, littered with bodies. But they have like one or two people <laughs> who I suspect is probably like Ted the Gaffer or, hey, you and craft services, why don't you go lie down and play a body? There's, there's, it's a really creepy premise that is so ripe for remaking. I'm startled it, no it, one has well, remade it. You know it. what this made me think of more than any, and it's barely a feature. It's like 60 something minutes. It's barely a feature. This is like, Imagine like a Cyberman episode of Doctor Who yeah. from the Patrick Troughton era, uh-huh. only the Doctor never shows up. Yeah. And all these villagers have to figure out how to handle this problem by themselves. It has that same sort of blocky, sort of chunky exposition and stiff uh, set and movement. And, you know, if you like that stuff, if you like that old Doctor Who, Quatermass experiment, early 50s uh, sci-fi You'll probably find something yeah, to find. I think Dark Screaming is pretty solid for the genre of this period. Yeah. Uh, its biggest problem is really just how ridiculous the monsters are themselves, but they also start bringing the dead back to life when it, and it does get creepier. I mean, this feels like it probably. God, what year was Night of the Living Dead? What year did that come out? Uh, this may, I think this came out a year or so after. Okay, so I was going to say either it was influenced by Night of the Living Dead or Night of the Living Dead was influenced by it. Yeah. But because there's definitely some similarities with the, you know, the group of survivors boarding themselves up in the house. Yeah. You know, who all start having things against each other as well. And they and, have to work out why they survived and no one else did. You know, uh, but it would have sold it a lot more if we actually saw more dead bodies. Kino Lober also put out this, this oh. month, the Astro Zombies, which which, by the way, if you've been going around telling people for years Plan 9 from Outer Space is the worst movie ever made, you are mistaken, sir. I believe that category is uh, firmly now dominated by the Astro Zombies, a 1968 sci-fi horror film that, believe it or not, has – well, I guess believe it or not. It's got John Carradine and it. It was not odd for John Carradine to be in terrible fucking no, films. Um <laughs> or he, any of the Caribbeans, for that matter. <laughs> I, I'm not going to try to synopsize this because that gives it too much credit. Suffice it to say that there are about three plots going on here. You've got a mad scientist who's creating astro zombies. You've got some astro zombies who are terrorizing people around the city uh, for no real reason. Uh, you've got some government agents who are trying to find out where this mad scientist went to. Apparently, he's just at his home in Malibu. They should have just gone there first. Yeah. And you also have a Satana, what's her name? Tura, Tura Satana. Satana. Yeah, from uh, Faster Pussycat Kill yeah. Kill, which I think is the only reason this film actually it's got the made. the only reason to look at it. Uh, and she and her boyfriend are like members of like a Soviet-backed Cuban crime syndicate who are also trying to steal this technology for some kind of reason. Yeah. The problem is... None of those groups interact with one another. Yeah. It's like they were all filmed. They were all filmed separately. It's as if the director said, you know what? I have three shitty screenplays. I'm going to take the least shitty part of each of those three <laughs> shitty screenplays, put them together, and make something that's only mildly terrible. No, no. It's and totally terrible. And it ended up terrible. being completely horrible. Yep. The best thing about this is... Is the commentary track by the, um, I, I say original Mystery Science Theater team, but the second Mystery Science Theater team. That would be uh, Mike Nelson, Kevin Murphy, and Bill Corbett uh, doing the riff tracks thing on here. This is something that Mystery Science Theater never got to do with the Astro Zombies. And they tried to get the rights to this several times and were not allowed to get I it. I can't believe uh, they um, weren't available. Yeah, I know, right? Um, but this is one of those things, if you are a Mystery Science Theater fan, this is an exceptional track. 
to listen to with them. It had me, I mean, it was one of those like where you're like kind of chuckling and you're kind of, then you're kind of chortling and then it all builds up and you're just crying laughing. It's so funny. I will there's, also say there are two other commentaries on this disc. They actually got the writer, director, producer, Ted Mickles to come out and talk about yeah, it. Yeah, you know, without, and you know, he speaks of it without a certain sense of pride. Uh, but there's also a, uh, a historian, Chris Alexander, who speaks on it. And I don't know if that's the same person who did the commentary for Earth Died Screaming, but we have multiple Kino Lorber releases. They're old, sort of classic drive-in exploitation movies. Yeah. And while some of them are better than others, the commentary tracks by these historians, and I believe it's the same guy on most of them, are really very solid. I mm. mean, even on some of these films that are not that terribly good. For example, Earth Died Screaming, and I think it's the same guy on this one, he goes into a lot of production detail about the history of the genre, about someone some who of the knows who way are, too much about these films. What he was talking about. And, you know, it almost made watching this movie worthwhile. But, but the, I agree. But none of them have the riff raff tracks. The riff tracks, yeah. The riff and tracks. This like, there's this one sequence in here where they set up this female scientist as, like, a, a target for the space zombies. And she's sitting in this room we've seen already way too many times in this, this yeah. lab, in this movie. And it is, like, ten minutes long. And it consists of total silence and her repeatedly looking at stuff around the room, the yeah. same like eight things in a circle. And there's no sense of like the pace getting hurried oh. or anything and watching it with the riff tracks where they're literally, it sounds like they're going insane <laughs> as they're going along. It's like, why is this still happening? Well, if it you is look so at the funny. John Carradine stuff, he does spends most of the movie by himself and his, and with his torgo, Yeah. And you know, he's literally just moving knobs and talking gobbledygook. And we're going to put this into the combobulator that, that's all he does see the, the whole movie. I don't know if it's the original director or not, but I know the actor who played Torgo in Manos Hands of Fate has announced that they're making a sequel to Manos Hands of Fate with him returning as Torgo. <sighs> I know. Go with God. Go with God. You know. Uh, anyway, yeah, Astro Zombies Astro is Zombies fun almost in made, almost made Manos better. Uh, you know, the only thing that ever, the only good that ever came out of Astro Zombies is it inspired a great song by the Misfits called Astro Zombies. Yeah, that's a great Other song. than that, uh, Skip it. Another Kino Lober is Chosen Survivors. I'd never even heard of no. this thing. Uh, 1974 sci-fi film with a cool start, like all these people being kind of groggily dragged into this yeah. cool 70s sci-fi looking oh, yeah. underground bunker where they're told, hey, um, nukes went off everywhere. Above ground is unlivable. We brought in you, the chosen by the government, the, you know, the, the people who represent higher levels of intelligence or physical, you know. Yeah. These like, are the people who are going to rebuild society. Who are going to rebuild society. We brought you into here. It's basically a prequel to Fallout. Yeah. We were like, okay. And then the problem is there's killer bats. And that you're like, is wait, the problem. Because <laughs> there is so much good going for this movie. I mean, again, a great opening like you started. A great premise. This yeah. idea of like the government Classic. against your will yeah. has forced you to survive. And you have to – and of course, a lot of these people are not cool with that. Yeah. Some of them want to leave. Some of them, you know, can't understand why they were chosen. Some of them obviously are worried about the people they left behind. The problem comes in when you find the antagonist – is, well, they're killer bats. Yeah, they're which makes bats. no sense. Why are they even vampire bats in those compounds? Because they put it in the deep cave. Yeah. That was the idea. Well, no, they, they actually the deep had underground. The, but they had the, the, the vampire bats in a cage. They escaped from the cage because they were like... No, no, no those were parakeets. Oh, they had no, but I thought they had the vampire bat. bats in a cage, no, no, no. too. The bats kill. Okay. The, the, that was my... They were coming from the cavern. They uh, put it in there. 
and somehow they had. But you're like, how was this built to survive a nuclear apocalypse compound? How did they miss a, an opening to a yeah. cavern? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, gas, radioactive, radioactive gas, toxic chemicals can't penetrate. But somehow there's a rough enough room for a bat to get in. Yeah, which are like th- you know thousands of badly green screen bats in the, yeah. the death scenes, which are like okay. I mean, even back then we knew that like little tiny these are not big mutated vampire they bats. They try so little, tiny hard to make those bats, bats look scary, and they're just not scary at they're all. Not. But the thing and, is, it's got a good But then, stuff. but then it's like oh, but humans are the real monster thing, yeah. and unfortunately, which is just a product of its time, it, it gets like there is a rape scene in here oh, God, that yeah. like. Like, does the unforgivable, where the guy is raping this woman, and she's like, she's okay, like, okay, okay fine. fine, let's do this. And, you're and like, it's by Jackie what? Cooper, of all people. Yeah, you I know? just, it's really uncomfortable to watch. Oh, Mr. White. There's, everyone in here are, like, regulars from television in the 70s. Oh, like, yeah. if you watch in a lot of TV in the 70s, you'll recognize this feels like everyone a TV in movie. it. It does, and it's just... Ultimately, it just makes so many bad turns. You totally see why I, this was I forgotten about. I like this a lot more than you did, but for me, the only thing that killed it were the bats. If you <laughs> took that out, because you know bats have really had a bad reputation for many years. Now, when I see a bat, I'm like, oh, that's kind of cute. But everybody freaks out, and they try so hard to make these bats look terrifying. But then eventually you just see a bunch of 70s character actors flailing as they pelt them with rubber bats. Yeah, and it's ridiculous. Uh, it I'll is. talk real quickly about Vampires, which uh, you didn't get I to didn't. see. It's a uh, remake of an old 70s film um, that I was never that crazy about either. There was that period in the late 60s, early 70s, European horror cinema was really into vampire sex movies, especially lesbian vampire sex movies. Oh, yeah. Um, with Dracula's Daughter, uh, Blood and Roses, Vampiros Lesbos, The Vampire Lovers, and The Blood Splattered Bride. I mean, it was a whole subgenre. But there hasn't really been any of those for a while. Um, this is a remake of a 1974 Spanish-British one called, called actually Vampires. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It is a softcore porn covered with blood that is indeed visually interesting at points, but doesn't, you know, put much effort into the level of performances. These women who play the two vampires who live out in an old country house were not chosen for their acting (laughs) assets. Um, But it does go full-blown gonzo in the sense of, like, more sex than violence. I mean, there's a there's some stuff that's like, wow, that's an arresting sequence where girls a beautiful woman naked in a bathtub taking a bath. And then as the camera pans out, you realize there's a naked woman hanging by her ankles above her. And she reaches by the side of the bath and just casually slits the woman's throat and then continues to bathe just yes, now with do. the blood pouring down all over her. And there's a lot of sequences like that, but that's, that defines what this film is. It's as good as shower is. gel. It's, yeah. It's not, the plot is, is nonsensical. It's, and, and next to useless. It's really just an excuse for one scene after another where these girls take off their clothes and get covered in blood with no actual gore, mind you. I mean, even sequences where they're like, there's a thing, there's a bit where they're, like ripping into this guy and mo- along with audio foley and flesh yeah, ripping. And then literally the more. very next shot where they just did that, there's nothing there. You're like, okay, there's nothing. Their cheek should be gone. They clearly know their audience because, yeah. you know, it's clearly not <laughs> aimed at a horror f- market. No. It's just for people who have, who like to get weird boners. These are, yeah. These are people who, who like that sort of really arty, 
70s euro erotica I want to genre, see like a Jess Franco I don't want to see anything stuff. too gory because yeah. it might kill it's, the buzz it's for, for Jess me. Franco fans and stuff like that. It's like, okay, it, I get that there's an audience for this, and this isn't terrible for that audience. Honestly, it's no real worse than most of those original films it's based on, but I'm not really sure it was necessary either. I don't know who that audience is. <laughs> I just assume if I ever met them, their hands are clammy. <laughs> Talk about unnecessary, and I'm oh, sorry. and vampires. Um, I did see this. Arrow's re-release of Vamp, a 1986 comedy horror that does neither horror or comedy particularly well, no. uh, but was largely sold by Grace Jones yeah. being the lead vampire. And a poster. Yeah. Which is, we're a looking cool at looking poster. It's a cool poster. Yeah. Uh, the story about this is Richard Wink, the director, who, by the way, recently wrote the new Jack Reacher film that came out and the... Uh, remake of The Magnificent Seven. This is a guy who is still working on some really major products. But this was his first writer-director gig, and the story, as he tells, because it's an Arrow film, so you're going to get a lot of great documentaries. A lot of bonus features, as Uh, always. A 40-minute making-of documentary, retrospective documentary. Uh, According to Wang, he was approached by his producer and said, look, I have this poster. I've sold people on this poster. It's just a pair of lips, a lipstick, and some fangs, and the word vamp. He says, if you can write a script for this, you can direct it. <laughs> it just has to have college students, vampires, and strippers. And you know what? That is what he went out and did. Uh, <laughs> it might actually give you, if you're being generous, uh, it might make you think of From Dust Till Dawn, which also has a vampire strip club. So Vamp kind of got to that first with a kind of queen mother vampire. In this case, instead of Salma Hayek, it's Grace Jones. But... I don't want to oversell this movie, okay? Yeah, this is like don't. this is the sort of the bottom of the discount bin at the VHS store. I vaguely remember this movie from. My I saw childhood. the shit in the theater. Oh wow! And I didn't like it then. Okay, <laughs> the one thing this movie does have going for it is that it is the most 1986 looking movie I've ever seen. Oh my god! Totally, and everything is lit with green and magenta. Oh, yeah. And every every single shot is clear. I mean, like, places you're like, why is there even a light here? There's a, where there's, like, clearly spotlights set up, like, in a sewer where it's like, this wall is green, yeah. but this wall is magenta. Because they didn't have any money, but they had <coughs> gels yeah. for lighting. And they said, okay, let's just try to make this look stylish. And if you think about it, a lot of 80s films had that sort of aggressively stylized you know, key lighting. Sometimes works, sometimes doesn't. It's, yeah. Here, it, it's it's uh, anachronistic. It, well, you know, it was anachronistic then, but actually it's of its period. I mean, the, I know what you're saying. Part of the problem here, right from the get-go, is the two main characters, uh, Chris Makepeace, who is one of those guys who, if you, you basically know, if you watched a lot of 80s films, like My Bodyguard or Nightmare yeah. on Elm Street, uh, and then uh, Robert Rustler, uh, sorry, he's the one from Nightmare on Elm yeah. Street. Um, uh, and thrashing and weird science and stuff like that. Like, they are two buddies who are applying to a fraternity who are bigger dicks than the fraternity. Yeah. You're like, wait, what? They, like, literally make make you feel bad for the obnoxious, like, fr- fr- yeah, hazing fraternity like, guys. You guys suck. We want to be in your fraternity because you have the best amenities. So here's what we'll do. We'll throw a killer party and it'll be so cool you'll let us into your fraternity. And they promise, you know, the party of a lifetime with booze and strippers. Yeah. But now they actually have to go and find some strippers. Which is a ridiculous 
it's like, from the get-go, because you're like, how did you guys get this big an ego in the first place when you had no connections to get booze or strippers? Yeah. So they're forced to go out in the city and find, uh, you know, strippers, which they find out, you know, they randomly kind of pick the strip club. The worst part of town. Yeah, the worst part of town. They have an early bad experience with uh, with some, some gangbanger types. An albino, a gang of albinos and their black girlfriends. Yeah, led by Billy Drago, who yeah. was one of those, another one of those guys from the 80s who was in everything. He was in The Untouchables and he was in Pale Rider. Yeah. He was in like so many fucking movies. I mean, literally hundreds of 80s movies that the moment you see him, you're like, oh, that guy. Yeah, he always plays a villain. And you're kind of surprised he's not the main villain in no, this because I, I, of who he is. He looks like a vampire. It's yeah. a total misdirect. Yeah, but they get into the club, and then, of course, it turns out that, like, the just like, you know, from Dust Till Dawn, the whole thing is a front for vampires to, like, to get some blood while still having a business that they're running. Yeah. And they think that AJ is by himself, and he's not, and they kill him. And then the friend's like, wait, where's my friend? And they're like, oh, fuck, what are we going to do now? Chaos erupts. Grace Jones gets involved, takes her shirt off a few times. And and a lot of really bad, tasteless, not funny humor. That is, yeah, this is a movie you are going to spend, if you laugh while watching this movie, rest assured you are laughing at it, not with it. Uh, one of the things I don't understand that doesn't work here at all, they set up this big mystery where Waitress of the Strip Club, played by Dee Dee yeah. Pfeiffer, has some sort of weird connection to these two guys, and they put off explaining what it is for so long that you're like, this has to be a huge thing, right? right. Like, they keep playing with it, and then it's just so utterly banal yeah. and pointless, you're like... I'm not even clear why when one of the scenes she gets pissed that it's clear he doesn't remember. Why would you be pissed that he doesn't remember? It, it, it's really only there to give her some connection. She is completely out of place. I'm like, woman, how long have you been at this strip club? <laughs> you haven't realized that you're working with murderous vampires? Yeah, she's it's, not very bright. It's really just there to say, oh, she's a nice girl. And, yeah. you know, we knew her when we went to school together or something. And I'm not ruining it. tries so hard to hit some of the marks of films of the 80s and just is fails miserably at it. It's just a truly bad film it that really exists is. as like a curiosity of how bad the eighties got at points. This is kind of like, if you want to see a film that defines everything that was going wrong in the eighties with movies, like this is the, the amalgamation of all the worst of it. But that being said in and of itself, that's kind of a reason to watch it. And there's like yeah. uh, lots and lots of bonus features and a commentary and stuff like that here, a blooper reel, which is almost unheard of for yeah. stuff from the eighties. Oh, if it wasn't a Jackie Chan film. Oh my God. Dracula bites the big apple, which I actually watched. Yeah. His first, the director's first short film. Okay. For those of you who aren't going to sit through it, and you really shouldn't, it is a 20-minute long short. Imagine about Dracula leaving Transylvania and coming to New York. Waka, waka, waka. This is like the longest Saturday Night Live skit ever. And, you know, crossed with a little bit of uh, that old George Hamilton movie, Love at First Bite. Yeah. If you've ever wanted to see a guy... Wearing a bad Dracula costume, doing a musical number, singing, dancing in the moonlight with hookers and homeless people. You might like this. You are kind of making me want to watch it by that. I mean, it is a train wreck, but I, I wonder looking at it going, who saw this and thought, this is the man this I need to one. direct my movie. Well, I don't know how he got the gig, but hey, he's moved on to better things. I will say a much better, oh, uh, much older better. horror film from Kino Lober this week is The Pit. 
I'd never even heard of this freaking thing. Like, I'd not on my radar in the slightest. I'd only seen an ad for it at the Alamo Draft House. That's the only time I'd ever heard of it. It well, was like, a, it was like on a Canuxploitation bill. Yeah, and that's the thing. There's all still a lot of Canada horror films that we just haven't gotten yeah. here that didn't quite make it all to the VHS in America. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of that stuff, and I'm kind of, it's making me curious to discover more of it, because this one is actually a reasonably solid evil yeah. kid, and, like, one with that, that doesn't know exactly what it is it's like multiple genres at the same time of horror oh so you've got this little boy uh the little boy jamie he in the movie he's 12 the actor playing him is actually 14 it you know he but it it works it works he looks a little bit older than 12 he looks like a a slightly mentally challenged 14 yeah and he's got this sort of bowl cut very creepy eyes and (coughs) here's the problem with this movie and also what makes it kind of great is Jamie is clearly disturbed. None of the kids like him. Most of the parents in the neighborhood are kind of freaked out by him. Yeah. And it makes it hard to find a babysitter for Jamie. When his parents decide to leave town, they find a young woman who happens to have a background in psychology. And she says, sure, I'll be happy to babysit him. What could go wrong? Well, unbeknownst to her, Jamie is already developing some very, very strong sexual urges, uh, which he's going to have to project onto somebody soon. Uh, also, Jamie is in communication with his only friend, a stuffed teddy bear, which as we see, all uh, teddy, which, you know, you would think is just a, you know, a, a, a technique for showing he's going into insanity, but the film chooses to show the teddy bear actually moving on Once, its own, uh, which I think is actually a mistake. Yeah. I think that was something I was talking about earlier, another crime that well, it was definitely uh, a mistake in the film to do that. Yeah, it yeah. was. And it's the same mistake that uh, Phantom of the of the theater does too which is like we're going to show you this because it looks cool and it's creepy even though it violates our premise i feel like it was almost done as a red herring yeah to throw you what the real issue is which is that he has this pit he found that has uh troglodytes in it many carnivorous man-eating troglodytes from thousands of years ago and somehow he's the only one who knows where they are and of course by this point in his life young jamie has developed a whole lot of enemies and he's run out of things to feed the troglodytes. So the last half of the movie is him just fooling people to get them into the pit. Who fall really easily into this pit. And, and like very, broad daylight. Very easily. And, and a very strange stylistic decision they make, which is when they fall, you never hear a victim scream. Yeah. It's, it's actually more unnerving. And as Jamie is obviously trying to work through his little hit list, he is also falling more and more in love with his uh, babysitter. Right. Uh, Who obviously does not reciprocate those type of feelings. Well, I, absolutely not. But she also happens to have a boyfriend to make Jamie up. Get his little tiny uh, jealousy up. Well, that's I think what where this film really starts to work is that it starts doing stuff nobody else, especially not in American films, had the yeah. balls to do, like. It breaks, like, those rules of, like, this is just lines we don't cross yeah. with, like, who gets killed and why, whereas yeah. he starts killing, like, innocent people and kids and, and like, and then there's, as it gets towards the very end, it's very surprising. I don't want to spoil it, yeah. but some of the, some of the, the people who die from it, you're like, wow. I mean, it's already enough that you have, this movie has at least three different ideas going on. This mm-hmm. movie would have worked if it was just about a young boy who is ostracized and bullied and does not know how to channel his budding sexuality that would have been one thing you also have a movie that has 
you know, his alter ego slash confidant, who is a teddy bear, who may or may not be sentient. Mm -hmm. And if that weren't weird enough, there is a literal pit with ancient troglodytes who look kind of like little people in werewolf suits. Yeah. Uh, It's all over the place, but it somehow works because of that one central performance. Kid films are, kid actors can always make or break a project for me. But while it's not the greatest performance ever, uh, the actor who plays the little boy is actually genuinely creepy. Yeah, absolutely. Sammy Snyder's, who yeah. was actually in a 16-minute interview of uh, yeah. the extras on this, talking about doing this film, uh, and uh, as well as like an interview with uh, the main actress who plays the babysitter, with the screenwriter, uh, with a with the composer. I mean. Pretty good little set of extras, yeah. which is – and a commentary from some film historians. Pretty – you know, this is Kino doing what they do pretty well. Yeah. And the thing is about The Pit, this is not a great movie no. by any stretch of the imagination. No. It's only only even arguably a good movie. But it's a fascinating movie, yeah. especially it, considering it, when it came out. It would have never gotten made today. And if, if nothing else, it is worth watching. If you watch this movie and you have to watch the special features, I did get to go see those. Uh, if you watch the special features, by all means, check out the uh, interview with Ian Stewart, the screenwriter, because some of the insane things that happen in this movie make a lot more sense when he talks about the genesis of the project and the deviations between the shooting script and the final edited version that was released. It, it'll start to make a little bit more sense, but as it is, it's some of those strange gaps of logic that have been allowed to stay in the final cut that actually make this film kind of weird and creepy. Yeah, agreed. Um, next up is a film that is actually a horror film that I, it's, I, I don't know if I'd even trust anybody who doesn't love Pan's Labyrinth. This is, I feel comfortable saying this is a modern day classic. It's a masterpiece. And, and now this completes my Criterion collection of all of Guillermo de Toro's Spanish films, and which they've released Kronos on, oh, on Blu-ray. Cool. They've released, uh, uh, The Devil's Backbone on Blu-ray and now Pan's Labyrinth. So you can get the three Definitely best pan, uh, uh, Guillermo de Toro films now. They are all his best the, films. All in the Criterion. And, and the thing is, and you are the exact perfect demographic for this release. Because this, as of course, it's a Criterion release. Mm-hmm. So you expect a certain level of quality. And of course, they meet that bar. This looks beautiful. It's wonderfully packaged. It's really, really a solid, top-notch release. The reason I can't really recommend it to my own surprise, because this is a great film released in a great edition. Most of the special features on this disc are ported over from the 2007 Blu-ray, which already looked fantastic. It was a great Blu-ray, So yeah. if you have, like, maybe if you have, like, a top-of-the-line, high-end home entertainment system, you might see that marginal uptick in quality. But really, the only two new things on here is a 40-minute conversation between uh, Del Toro and uh, an author... Uh, Cornelia, uh, Cornelia Funk, Funk, who did Inkheart. Yeah, and... About lost... about the nature of translating fairy tales right. and deciphering and you have them. a 25-minute interview with Doug Jones. The problem I have with these two new special features, even though they're in and of themselves okay, mm-hmm. there's nothing really new or groundbreaking that you have not heard these guys talk about in a hundred other documentaries or interviews. And in fact, I was really looking forward to uh, the conversation between Del Toro and Funk, who clearly uh, likes Del Toro. And 
he lets, she kind of prompts him, but you don't need to prompt that guy much to talk about something he's passionate about. So it's very one-sided as a conversation. Uh, so she really never gets an ed, a word in edgewise. And again, Doug Jones is always great and fun to watch. But, but he doesn't tell you anything new. I mean, this is the ultimate edition. If you already have the yeah. older one, there's not enough new stuff. Unless you're, unless you're one of those serious technophiles or a technophile like because like this is definitely a better like upgrade to the the video and audio but not enough so that unless you have a like a 4k tv or something you're gonna notice this is the only thing we have a lot of re-releases this month but this is the only one that kind of feels like a double dip but again if you're a completist yeah obviously you're happy to have that this is one of my favorite films so absolutely it's essential but if you don't need the Criterion version, or if you already have the Blu-ray, mm-hmm. you know, save yourself some money and, and buy something. One, one buy way, something new. In one way or the other, if you haven't seen Pan's Labyrinth, if you it, haven't seen it, it, if you don't own it, go shell out it. the extra cash for the it's Criterion amazing. version. But uh, there's nothing here to make me give up my current copy. Nope. Uh, so, like, next up is Preacher. Once again, we're not going to go too much into this because we actually have reviewed every single episode on this site. There's a We have a show called The After Party where Sarah and I went episode by episode reviewing each episode of this. Uh, this is adaptation, of course, of the Garth Ennis and Steve Dillon uh, just sadly passed away. Steve Dillon just died um, uh, this week, a few days ago. Uh, the comic book series, which is amazing. It's basically functions as a prequel to the comic series the first season. This is all stuff that takes place before the comic even starts, but then mixing in some stuff that happens as well short in the first couple of issues. And it doesn't completely work. Parts of it really work. Parts don't. Uh, the best part about it is Joseph Gilgan as Cassidy. But either way, like... This is one of those, if you were interested in it, you're going to watch it at some point, whether you're waiting for the home release or Netflix or you're watching as is. And I don't think it's terrible. It just makes me go, can we please get to the part where it goes to what happens in the comic book already? Um, I didn't bother watching it. But, uh, again, I don't watch a lot of TV shows because I don't want to get sucked into them. Uh, this has got some deleted and extended scenes, a featurette basically about how difficult it was to get even the pilot made because nobody thought this could get done at all. Uh, there's a stunts of Preacher featurette. Uh, the Blu-ray, exclu- Blu-ray exclusively has a gag reel, which is pretty funny, and then a chainsaw fight breakdown, which is one of the coolest fights in here, and behind the killing machine, Saint of Killers, which is, if you've read the comic book, you know, it's the basically a Clint Eastwood man with no name archetype who has become a unkillable juggernaut who's wandering around trying to, to find the preacher, but through most of the first season is just flashback revealing his origin story. Um, I really hope the second season is going to fix a lot of the mistakes with the first one, but this is still worth watching. I thought actually liked much better than that, despite also being kind of mediocre in its way was, uh, Constantine, this should have been just on the CW. It's kind of ridiculous that this this was attempted by NBC, who clearly never were really that interested in making this in the first place. This is based off the comic book Hellblazer uh, that Garth Ennis also wrote for a while with Matt. The best thing about it being Matt Ryan, who plays John Constantine, the British exorcist and occult detective, who is the guy to play John Constantine. Even people who don't like the show agree. Wow. 
you found John Constantine to the point that he's even going to be voicing him in the next DC animated release of of Justice League Dark. (laughs) They got him on that. He actually made a guest appearance on two episodes of the fourth season of Arrow playing the character again, uh, which gives us all hope maybe the CW at some point will pick up Constantine for a new show. Because it was one of those things that it started so strong with a great pilot and then for about four episodes, it was like, okay, this is just Monster of the Week crap. Where are you going? And then, in the last couple episodes of the first season, found a direction, started moving aggressively towards it, got really creepy and really cool. And I was like, damn, I'm actually really liking this now. And then, of course, got canceled. So this is one of those, I mean, this is literally NBC archival set, but released on Blu-ray, you know, for whatever it's worth, uh... Like, if you're a completist like I am with wanting to own, like, every superhero show that's out there and movie and everything, uh, this isn't a bad one. The only reason not to really pick it up if you collect that sort of thing is that, yeah, it never really gets any sort of sense of completion. It was just this one season. Still bugs me because it was a lot better than a lot of the other NBC shows that they won't let go of. And, you know, there's a few bonus features, but not anything really significant. There's no deleted scenes or anything like that. But yeah, it's, it's, it is what it is. Much better than that is HBO's The Night Of, which is another one I tread lightly. Oh, yeah. I have not seen this yet, and I've heard that this is the thing to watch. Unfortunately, I don't have HBO, so I'm going to have to catch it later. It's like a narrative version of Serial in its way. Do you have the DVD? Uh, It's here somewhere. Yeah. Um, It's wonderful HBO series that is like... I mean, it's it's so cracky. It's very slow procedural, to be sure. But you get really into the story of Riz Ahmed playing a Nazir Khan, who is a Pakistani-American college student who finds himself in a scenario where he just meets this girl. He takes her – he gets taken back to her town home uh, in the middle of the city. They have sort of like – they do a bunch of drugs. They have sex. He wakes up in the morning – like in a totally different room, not clear on how he even got to another room. And she's been stabbed 22 times. And so he's like, fuck this. I'm out of here and leaves. Uh, and of course gets picked up by the cops. He's just a scared college kid. And most of this is like, you know, his, like the defense putting together their, their case and the prosecution putting together their case and then the trial. And it's fascinating to watch it all play out because when you start, this guy is like, I mean, he is a deer in headlights. He's the nicest kid who you see being sort of seduced into this world by this girl because she's mysterious and sexy and doing stuff he's reluctant to do. And as it goes along, you're like, okay, maybe he he clearly wasn't as deer in the headlights as he actually looked. But that doesn't mean he's guilty either. Uh, and it's kind of half that and half kind of like Oz. Because half of the story is him surviving, learning to survive in, in prison, like as he's there and like having to basically form a connection with Michael uh, K. Williams, who's mm. kind of the top dog in this prison, who's like, look, I'll protect you, but you're going to have to do stuff. Uh, and he's basically this innocent little college kid turning hard in prison while all this is going on, much to the consternation of his lawyers. John Turturro doing a wonderful job as this underdog lawyer who finally got the big bone, you know, that he just lucked into, which is this case, and is just doing his best to win it. Even though he's normally kind of a sleazy lawyer, this case means something to him, and he finds himself getting very emotionally drawn into it. And he's a weird character because he's got uh, exa- eczema, eczema, really bad yeah. eczema, so he's constantly, like, picking off his skin. It's kind of gross, but he's aware it's gross. I don't know. This is 
I know I'm I'm not totally selling you on this, but no, no, I am completely sold. It's I have been. I just want to really know good. How many episodes? How many episodes total are on this yes. thing? Uh, I want to say it's like eight. Okay, now before I even go further yes, down this rabbit episodes. hole, is this a miniseries or is this like I'm going to have to wait for? It's a standalone. Then I'm interested. Yeah. That is a civilized amount of time to watch a movie and be told a story. I mean, they very well might do another show that with, but it would be obviously a completely new sure. crime, you know, I, just I, under a situation. It's one of the reasons I don't like to get into TV shows because it's like, you know, it, you're going to, I need to know that this is going to end eventually. Yeah. Um, then I can commit to watching it. Surprisingly, no extra content at all. Which is really shocking. HBO usually puts together tons of stuff, and this was so beloved as it was airing. I'm kind of shocked they didn't put something I, I together. I get the impression that it did better than they expected, and so they just rushed this out. It could be. Um, it, it definitely is one of those shows that's interesting because it's such a water cooler show. Yeah. As at first, you're like, "Well, how could he have possibly not done it?" Yeah. You know. But even though we're like, you're looking like there's like no way he did it because of who he is. But at the same time, who in the else could have done it? And then as it goes along new suspects start popping up and it turns into such a water cooler show as every week you're like oh i don't know but what about that guy and that shit you and know? it's you know co-written by richard price who's done a lot of great crime uh mm -hmm. thrillers and tv series it really works yeah. uh then there's the re-release of crouching tiger hidden dragon um honestly the previous blu-ray release was not a very good release anyway yeah. Uh, and so this new one that's coming out is in fact 4K Ultra HD, which for a film like Crouching Tiger is a movie you want a oh, super yeah. best of best of release. Um, Crouching Tiger, I think, is also a masterpiece. I think it is one of the best martial arts films ever made, at least in terms of wushu, which is like, you know, that very ba ballet like, like everybody can kind of jump fly. Uh, like it's all more yeah. like dancing than it is like fighting. But it's so gorgeous and perfectly made. Yeah. A performance that is heartbreaking from Michelle Yao and Chow oh, Yun yeah, Fat. It's just, it really is a masterpiece. And there's a new 20 minute making of featurette called Unleashing the Dragon. Uh, um, uh, I'm sorry, that's not a new one. No, it's not. My it mistake is, is that is the one that was on the original DVD that right. is not here, but everything else is ported here, including a new making of right. uh, featurette on here. So there is some new bonus features yeah. in here. There's an hour uh, and 20 new, minutes of interviews. There's, with, there's seven really minutes of never-before-seen deleted yeah. scenes, which is which is a kind of cool thing to, to, to come in here, surprising that that never existed before. Uh I mean, it's such a great movie. If you're going to watch it, don't watch it some shitty version. Watch it yeah. in the best – I mean, the best way to watch it this is – This is a solid a, release. This is a film that if it's playing in your theater in, like, your Alamo coming back or something, yeah, go see it. it for the first time there, you know? But, like, the other way to see it would be, like, yeah, on a 4K TV with the stereo turned way up for the gorgeous Dan Tun soundtrack. It's just – it's wonderful. Um now, coming towards the end here, we're getting towards sort of the, the, these are, we're getting into my Christmas picks yeah. for this year. This was basically stuff that you go, what am I going to get mom and dad this year? Or older brother Joe. Well, here's some of the stuff that is coming out that I feel like is going to hit that, those marks exactly. I make them really happy. Uh, first off is Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. And I love this movie. You, you can't go wrong this with... This is a great movie and a great release. You can't give, go wrong with giving a guy over 40 a Frank Capra film. No. You know. Uh, and, and this is the best it has ever looked at home video. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, it's... The Restoration is beautiful. And it's not even a, a, a visual feast kind of movie. Mm-hmm. It's just classic Hollywood high standards. And man, it looks great. And it hel- it doesn't hurt that this is an extraordinarily funny movie. Honestly, as even though we did some really high, really good comedies this week, Mr. Deeds is the one I laughed at the most. It's a it still works. Genuinely funny movie, and it's it's remarkable for two reasons. Of uh, historically, one, this is the film where Capper went from just doing romantic comedies to. I really feel like I want to do something with this power I There's have and say something. Yeah. And this is the first of pretty much every movie he made after this that had a, a social commentary element to it. Uh, and it also was the film that changed Gary Cooper's entire career. Oh, yeah. From being a guy who was just role. kind of like a Western type, like tough guy to playing like the aw shucks, yeah. lovable, like, like, like Americana icon type guy He's who's like, like a more rugged Jimmy Stewart. In yes. This. It yes, would totally. not be hard to imagine that when it came down to, it had to have come down to him or Jimmy Stewart and either one of them could have knocked this role out of the park, but it went, to uh to pet uh, not to peck Gary Cooper it went to Gary Cooper and man he's fantastic yeah he's a guy who's from a small town uh owns a, a candle works yeah. there uh, he writes greeting cards but calls himself a poet um he's a he's a, he's simple, a small town eccentric he's a, he's a small town eccentric rural guy everybody gen- generally likes him uh, plays the tuba you know middle of nowhere but he inherits twenty million dollars from his uncle who he didn't even really know. And mind you, this is during the Depression, when yeah. 20 bucks was a lifesaver. But he was... 20 million. But he was doing fine. He was doing fine. Yeah. That's that's when you know his character is a little bit different, because he's like, oh, I want 20 million. He doesn't even want the money. Yeah, he's like, I, he's don't, like, I don't know. Need it. He's like more of a, like, because this group of lawyers who show up who are like, no, 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 you have to come back to the city he and we'll figure as this a, out. As, yeah, more as a responsibility. I have to go as the last living heir. I have to go settle this. Who basically state. just want to convince him to sign over the rights to manage that money to right. back to their firm who've been handling it, because... Yeah. But frankly, they've mishandled some of the funds yeah, already. money that they don't want anybody looking into the books too yeah. closely. And everybody in this movie uh, assume this is kind of a culture clash comedy, too, because he goes from small town New England. He goes to the big city. He goes to New York. And everybody assumes that this guy is going to be a country bumpkin who can be easily manipulated. He is kind of an easily ma- manipulated country well, bumpkin, though. Well, the thing is, though. he's not. That's the thing, though. He turns out to be much shrewder and smarter. His Achilles heel, the one person who totally bamboozles him, is this young woman who thinks... He thinks that she's a, a shop girl, that she works in a factory, she's nice, she's the only person who seems interested in him, not because of the money... Turns out she's actually a very ambitious journalist, the person who is writing all of these horrible pieces about him in the gossip. A star making turn by Gene Arthur. Oh, she's fantastic yeah. in this. And, you know, he, it, the heartbreak that he has when he realized the only person in this town whom he really cares for, and he realizes she is the one person who's been able to manipulate him. And when he uh, decides to start redistributing his wealth, if you will, uh, he gets sued on insanity charges. And all of a sudden, the woman he loves, her horrible columns are Exhibit A against him. If that sounds like it's really convoluted, it's really not. It's a very simple, elemental story. But it is hilarious. It's great. 
It's beautiful to look at. There's a couple special features. A movie this old, you're not going to get a whole lot. Well, it's it's but, pretty nice. It comes know, with the, like it's a digibook, which I always digibook love. Digibook is those. beautiful. That's my favorite way for them to package it these absolutely things. Absolutely great. Uh, there's audio commentary from the director's son, Frank yeah. Capra Jr. But the problem is he's only occasionally talking, yeah. which I hate. why even bother? And he was a kid. He wasn't there. Yeah. Um, there's a featurette on Frank Capra Jr. Remembers Mr. Deeds comes to town once again. Vintage advertising gallery. So not a huge amount of stuff. The main thing. A was that the previous uh, edition of this film was shit. Yeah. was really bad that you could get of this. I mean, and this, this is a so beautiful... Clear. You know, it's funny about this film. It's I great. really genuinely like this, but, like, so many of the stuff about this that was likable about this character then, now, is like, what the fuck, dude? Like, he just hauls off and punches anybody who feels oh, like yeah. has disrespected him in the slightest. And that's why I'm like, he kind of is just a country bumpkin. He like, is, I yeah. mean, he's like got his own kind of wisdom, but he's not really brilliant he's a either. He's rough around the edges. Yeah. But he's smart enough to know when people are bullshitting him, too. Yeah. When he's like, well, why should I give you this money? It's like, well, it always has like, well, you know. But there's, like, I mean, this, even if you're having troubles with this, like, because I'm like enjoying this, but going like, okay, this isn't my favorite Capra, but I'm liking it. When you yeah. get to the courtroom scene for his oh, trial, yeah. it's so awesome. It it's is. It's so good. You know, I mean, like, and just one of those, like, stand up and cheer endings, yeah. you know. And, and, and hilarious as they bring in even met people from his town uh, to testify against him and the way he turns everything on on uh, his accusers' heads. Uh, to say any more would be to ruin it. Suffice yeah. to say, this is a stone-cold classic. Yeah, well this worth your time. This is a great movie. It's never looked better. And, you know, honestly, I was just thinking about this today. It, it is the 80th anniversary oh, of Jesus. Mr. Deeds. 80 years now, you and I will not be around in 80 years. And practically no one who saw this when it came out is alive. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm looking at this stack of movies from 2016, some of which are quite wonderful. I don't know what we're going to be watching 80 years from now, but I suspect Mr. Deeds will still hold We up. won't know what we're watching 80 years from now because we, won't, we won't be here. <laughs> exactly. I, I wish I could find out what the, the, what the Mr. Deeds of 2016 will be. It's probably Groundhog's Day. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, well, not that's not, oh, not 2016, 2016, but, but yeah, a modern. I can see that holding up that long. years. They're gonna go. Yeah, still makes sense. Uh, also, in the hey, I got to get something for Dad collection is the Gregory Peck Centennial Collection. Now, the disappointing thing here about this is it's called a collection. It's two movies that have both already been separately yeah. released with all of these Blu-ray extras. One of which was released as a digibook. Here, it's not. So you're like, well, okay, like, but. I'm giving up that part of it for this, but it's got all the other digital bonus features. Uh, and these are both phenomenal films, uh, even though one of them is an odd choice to highlight Gregory Peck, which is Cape Fear is one of these on here, where Actually, it's Gregory Peck is not the guy who carries that film. No, but it's still a great movie. It's a great movie. And I that suspect is, they had the license to those two movies. Yeah, that's together. all about Robert Mitchum and how great he yeah. is. It's one of the greatest roles of his career. Yeah. Um, and yes, you get all the bonus features that came with the original version of that, and then you get To Kill a Mockingbird, which is not only probably Gregory Peck's best film, but one of the greatest movies ever made. Uh, excellent. And yeah. yeah, I mean, like, these are two films anybody true cinema lover of classic film would be thrilled actually to get good. this it's, set but it is they are both double dipping and and like yeah. i mean just smashing together but two again, previous this releases is what you get like you said for a family member you don't know what they get they you know you know that they're gonna like this uh, any, this is like when those at walmart and you see like 
John Wayne collection, and it's like four discs with like 32 John Wayne movies, and yeah. you've only heard of like eight of them. You know, yeah. In this case, it's it's like you're actually getting really, really nicely fixed up versions of two great yeah. movies. You know, like there's nothing, there's none of that. Eighty percent of this is filler. Yeah. This is all prime stuff. It's just oddly smashed together. That's all. It is a strange double bill. Um, but much better, much more exciting than that to me is they put out the Marx Brothers finally on Blu-ray. Ah. It's about goddamn time. The Silver Screen Collection, I'm pretty sure this is the first time any of these have been on Blu-ray. And maybe the first time some of them have been on DVD. I'm not even sure. Oh, wow. But it's, all five movies. It's five of the greatest Marx Brothers films all, all all in this one digipack. Of the Coconuts, Animal Crackers, Monkey Business, Horse Feathers, and Duck Soup. All, you know, Blu-ray restored editions. Uh, why... Wouldn't you want to own this? This is like, I mean, the Marx Brothers, like, it always drives me crazy how people always like, and from my generation, always talking about how much they love the Three Stooges and never mention the Marx Brothers. I'm like, I'm sorry. The Marx Brothers could clean up the house with the Three oh, Stooges absolutely. in terms of like how smart the, the films are, the how Marx well made they are. The Marx Brothers didn't do shorts. No. That was the big difference. We grew up at a time when there was a lot of <laughs> dead air on, and they needed to fill it with content, and there were tons of those two-reeler uh, Three Stooges shorts. So we grew up on a diet of those. But the Marx Brothers, you know, that's like an hour and a half block of time they would have to. But yeah. instead, you could show like five Three Stooges cartoons. I grew up watching the Three Stooges. But now that I think about it, I don't ever remember seeing the Marx Brothers on TV. Mm. Not until maybe we got like Turner Classic. Because you grew up watching stuff. them when they were like Saturday afternoon, like, yeah. like stuff where they're like, oh, well, this is only 10 minutes long, 15 minutes long. We so need we can. Some filler to put in between exactly. commercial breaks. Whereas Marx Brothers is sitting down for a full movie. But in terms of like sitting down to watch their stuff now, I go, the Mar- the, there's no comparison to who's better. The oh, Marx no, Brothers were, were a significant comedy force, and these are some of their best yeah. movies with the original Marx Brothers uh, in it. Um, the only thing really missing that's a s- absolutely essential in the set is A Night at the Opera, which I believe yeah. I believe got a Criterion release. I can't I remember so. offhand, but regardless, this it is one of those, like, print, any old happen. school comedy film fan, like, if your dad has said he likes the Marx Brothers, this is going to thrill him. Um, there's a hour and 19 minute uh, featurette called the Marx Brothers Hollywood's King Kings of Chaos. Uh, so, you know, I mean, right there alone. This is another one I'm going to borrow from you just to see that because I did not get to review this. So. And then there's a Inside the Today Show vault, the interviews, which offers interviews with Harpo, Groucho and Bill, Harpo's son. So, yeah, pretty solid set. Great stuff. You know, like I said, Christmas is coming up. Better start thinking about it now. These things are going to do nothing but get more expensive on Amazon the closer you wait towards Christmas to buy stuff. Oh, my goodness. Are we at the end at last? We are this at the end. It has been a end. marathon session. It has session. been a huge show, and I want to thank you for coming out this week and, like, well, listen, watching this stuff over the last three oh, weeks. Oh, no. I mean, I, there's some Such stuff I stack. wish I had time to watch. I mean, like... I would have loved to have watched the Marx Brothers and the other stuff, but it's probably best because I would have watched all the stuff I wanted to see and would not have bothered watching the stuff that I had not seen yet. Right. There you go. So I tricked you. A, it, it, it's <laughs> like, if I give him this, he's not going to watch Satanic. Come on. <laughs> you know, I need someone to talk about that turd with me. Yeah. Sorry about that. I, in retrospect, I should have said, you know what? If you don't want to watch Six Plots, you don't worry about it. Uh, yeah, I watched it. And, you know. 
What can you do? Yeah. But it this happens. was... We had much more great stuff than Absolutely. not so great stuff this it, week. If so. Six Plots and Satanic were the two worst movies in a stack of about 20 things, yeah. we did pretty damn Man, good. mention again that the Astro Zombies is totally worth it because of the riff track. Oh, yeah. Track I on forgot. Here. Astro Zombies yeah. is like kind if of you're, If bad. you're a Mystery Science Theater collector and you generally get those when it comes out, this is basically a, the one of the best Mystery Science Theater episodes that never aired. Like totally worth it for that i mean in some ways that's my other pick of the week just because of how as a mystery science theater fanatic it's like whoa it's like finding hidden treasure (laughs) (laughs) anyway that's it for digital noise we'll be back in another week or two with maybe richard he said he's coming back in november so and we're getting there i just assumed that you had buried him in the backyard i haven't seen him in months there have been times i've thought about it but not because of anything to do with digital noise usually because bury him bury him deep usually he'll come back yeah usually only when he starts talking about the star wars films oh god Let's not start that again.